It's time to get away in a new Hyundai vehicle during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event at Woodhouse Hyundai. The Hyundai lineup of sedans and SUVs has the capability you need and technology and features you want, like the all-new 2023 Hyundai Palisade and Hyundai Tucson. This holiday season, get into a vehicle that will give you confidence with Hyundai Owner Assurance, America's best 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Visit us online at WoodhouseHyundaiOfOmaha.com. This episode of The Sean Ryan Show is brought to you by Nutrient Survival. You need to ask yourself, do you want to be a fucking commando today? I had to go through eight months of training with the CIA. And the reason why we had to cross train with them is because we four deployed later on into these countries where we had to work underneath the chief of station, you know? It was, it was really funny because you and I, after talking last night, we were in the same country. On the same project. On the same, hunting down the same person. Yeah. Yeah. There was this fight promoter named Santo. He was a Japanese guy. And, took underneath when he obviously he wanted to make money out of me and he said would you want to fight you know at Japanese dojos at matches he was talking about the underground matches and the, the technology was used against the enemy and how we would find fix and locate and kill him he got killed uh, was that 2006 yep. I tracked down a tiger get the sh- are you shitting me? Yeah. A yeah, tiger? I tracked down a wild tiger. Welcome back to the Sean Ryan Show. This is episode 009, and we've brought you our most requested guest to date. I want to kick things off by saying thank you to all the patrons on Patreon. Because of you guys, we're getting an entire new studio, which will be done by the end of next month. I wanna say thank you to everybody who's left us a review on iTunes. If you haven't done that yet, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, even if it's just one word, that's all we ask, just one word on iTunes. And lastly, please go to VigilanceElite.com, subscribe to the newsletter for all of the other content that we release on all the other platforms. There are hundreds of other videos to include behind the scenes footage of The Sean Ryan Show. Let's get on with it.
number 009. He was smuggled out of Vietnam at an extremely young age and later found himself in the United States where he would serve a 23-year military career, 20 of which as a Green Beret in special operations. After retirement, he went on to become Call of Duty's character, Ronin. He co-hosted History Channel's Forged in Fire, Knife, or Death. He founded Ronin Tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome 009, Mr. Two Lamb. Two, welcome to Tennessee, man. Thank you. It's great being here. It's great having you. Thank you. You are the number one most requested uh, guest for the Sean Ryan Show, and so I'm just ecstatic to have you here. We ever since episode one, it's been, can you get two lamb on the show? Can you get two lamb on the show? And now you're here, and um, you know we had some talks before today on the phone, and then uh, meeting you at dinner last night, and. Dude, we got a lot to dive into. Absolutely. So, Looking forward to this. Me too, man. But just, I mean, so many accomplishments. 23 years military service, 20 years special operations, if I'm not mistaken. You have beat the game Call of Duty more than anyone I know. <laughs> uh, because you're a character in it. Forged in fire. Uh, you had a extremely successful uh transition out of the military and uh overcoming you know the dreaded transition and uh you know something that i think a lot of people leave out that is uh extremely commendable is you've been with your wife for 20 years and it sounds like she was with you the whole time um through all those deployments and and uh that is no easy task for for any spouse and uh you know coming from a occupation that has one of the highest divorce rates in the world that's pretty amazing thank you so yeah and uh and meetner uh what an amazing woman you've got Absolutely. there so appreciate that thank you yeah you're welcome but <clears throat> all right so every show i always start out with a gift <sighs> so because your name's two we got you two gifts. Hey, I like that. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, here we go. You ready? One. And here's the other one. Oh, wow. I have me some Elite candy. That's right. <laughs> this is awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Wow. Those s'more bites have been compared to crack. They're so good. Yeah? Yeah. Well, so I can't wait to try this careful. crack. <laughs> be careful with those. Awesome, man. I appreciate this. this looks so great. Right on. Thank yes. you. So that hoodie we had modified, you know, so you're a pretty thick guy. So it's it's a large torso with double X arms. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, man. I so, appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. 
But um, just diving into it, your story starts uh, at birth. And, uh, you know, you were born into war. And uh, so I kind of want to cover some of that. But in 1973, Nixon uh, signed a peace agreement with North uh, Vietnam, South Vietnam, and the U.S., which unfortunately nobody followed. And then the U.S. started pulling troops out in 1973. You were born in 1974 in Saigon. The hospital was getting mortared. Yeah. And um, so I'd like to start right there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's let's put us back in that time frame, you know, huge unpopular American war. You know, it was a war of a body count, you know. Um, the Americans uh, that came in and, and fought against the uh, the communist regime, the North Vietnamese. Well, during that time when the Americans drew withdrew, um, you know, I'm South Vietnamese. I was born on the the losing side of the war. Um, on the, on the morning of my birth, you know, my mother. I was born on the basement floor of the Saigon Hospital. My mother shielded my body from incoming artillery fire on the morning of my birth. At three months old, I lost my freedoms um, to the communist regime. You know, like any um, occupying force, you know, they're they're going to take the leadership out of that uh, government. So Saigon was the capital of Vietnam. You know, South Vietnam. You know, the the country was divided north south. The North Vietnamese surrounded uh, the country, uh, the city of Saigon mortared us, uh, artillery fire. Eventually the troops came in and, um, that's when the post-war genocide started happening. You know, our family, we, um, the North Vietnamese will go through the homes. They'll look for valuables, good belongings. They'll push out the, um, the civilians out in the streets. And, you know, if you serve with the South Vietnamese army, then you are immediately executed. All right. If my my uncle who served with the uh, the South Vietnamese along with the Americans, they were immediately executed. My other uncles were in prison in what they call re-education camps. Let me explain this, Sean. You know, when I these re-education re camps are torture camps. You know, by the time I received my uncle, after fifteen years of imprisonment, he had no skin on the bottom of his foot. Damn. All right, so they torture him, beat him, broke him as a human being. So at three months old, you know, I we we endured that. My mother held on to me as they killed our family. We were facing genocide. At um, we lived underneath uh, communist occupation till I was three years old. During that time, there was a flux of refugees leaving uh, Vietnam. Was the violence happening the the entire three years leading up to? Uh, no, that initial violence, and this is history, me studying history, that initial violence of uh, occupying, taking out the current regime, the power in, in that government system, uh, imprisoning people. Once that was established, then the oppression started, you know, um, social ideology. You know, you're going to pay the government system this. The oppression, we started starving, you know. So we're facing, you know, 
them oppressing us as a, a human race. And then eventually uh, we started facing genocide. You can read the, the history on it. You know, um, they, they looked at our lives as in um, we're not even worth a bullet. They would take us out in the rice paddies and they would murder people by putting a uh, plastic bag over their heads. Damn. Suffocating them to death, you know. So at three years old, um, my parents, my my biological father and my mother and my brother, um, we escaped on a wooden fishing boat with hundreds, hundreds of other, hundreds of thousands of other fleeing refugees. You know, I want to put you in this scenario. Imagine like escaping in this country, right? Hundreds of thousands of refugees escaping um, on wooden boats. Well, that brought in the piety that was going on around other countries, so neighboring countries like Thailand, Philippines, you know, the pirates, the bandits that came in. And basically they would uh, stop our boats when we were escaping. They'll uh, board the boats, they'll murder the men, rape the women and torture the children. Were you, <clears throat> just backing up for just a second, on these boats, who was orchestrating uh, this kind of uh, migration out of South People, Vietnam. they just, they're trying to leave. So think about like Syria or any, any country that's war torn. They're just trying to escape that area, right? So after the fall of um, South Vietnam, you know, we are facing the communist regime. So a lot of people are just, they were walking out of the country. They were getting on these wooden boats, smuggling themselves out. It was, it was not like the the communist regime let us leave. Yeah, we had to escape, you know. And uh, the people that um, own these boats, they're like fishermen, and they're just trying to make a living too. So these are like, can you describe the boat? A normal wooden fishing boat. Just a motor, no motor. A motor. Yeah. A motor boat. Now this normally fits about maybe twenty people. My mother said on our boat, it was a hundred plus people. Holy shit. We couldn't sleep. Um, we had to um, basically, we, we're, we were in the basement area of the boat, the bottom deck of the boat, and we had to sleep sitting up, right? Because they were jam packed in there. So think about the smell, think about uh, the, the desperate, you know, how desperate these people were, the rich, we're in the same boat as the poor. Wow. You know, so we are truly trying to survive and truly, you know, trying to escape. So the piety was going on. Um, my mother told me the the uh, the captain of the boat, he used to have been ex-Navy for the South Vietnamese military. So he employed the tactics that you needed to navigate past these piety and basically all he did was we escaped at night he shut off the lights and we just kind of so uh, sailed past the piety by cutting off the motors right and then once we got out at sea then he cut on the motors and then we went our first des destination was malaysia right so you think about it man like we're escaping and all these neighboring countries they don't want they don't want to deal with you yeah. They don't want your issues. They don't want escaping refugees in their country where now they have to house and feed you. They're third world countries themselves. So we went into uh, Malaysia and um, the Malaysian Coast Guard stopped us at gunpoint. They shot at us. And then they, they told us that we will not enter their country. They anchored us um, in and then they pulled us back out into the ocean. 
They shot our motor, cut the lines, and left us drifting out of the oceans to die. You know. So my mother said we drifted. You know, we, we were out there for nearly a month at sea. A month? And nearly a month at sea. And she said people started dying, you know, due to the lack of food and water, uh, people were dying. And they're stealing, they're fighting from each other. Um, they threw the dead bodies over the sea, you know. So we, my mother said we were in a very desperate survival situation. She, she actually told me she lost hope. Do you remember any of this? No. Nothing? No. There's flashes of like the refugee camps growing up. There was a, a flash of like in my dreams where I see a light going through like the crevice of a boat. And I'll explain that, that light. But those like little flashes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I remember the whole big picture. I was so young. How about your brother? My brother remembers. How old was he? He's four years older than me. Okay. So he was seven at the time. Wow. Um, so, you know, people started dying. We're, we're, my mother said they were throwing people off the boat, or lack of food, water. And then, um, you know, my mother carried poison in her belongings. You know, it was a common practice for fleeing refugees to poison their children when the journey ends. That means they know they're going to die. Or if the pirate, pirates enter the boat, then they'll give the poison to their children so they won't die uh, being tortured, that they have the peaceful, you know, death. So my mother contemplating on this poison because she knew that we're not going to make it, you know. So she said a huge storm hit us. You know, imagine a fishing boat, man, out in the middle of the South China Sea, right? And she said this huge storm, she thought the boat was going to tip over. With no motor. No motor. And we drifted and drifted. Um, but the the rain, she said, saved us because it, it allowed us, you know, uh, the water source we needed in order to survive a few more days, you know. She, she said that we drifted out, the, the, the storm took us further out into this, the, the ocean. They didn't know where, the, the captain didn't know where we we're at. You know, we were just out at sea, had no motor. We're just drifting. And um, a miracle happens, man, you know. There was a Russian supply boat that was exiting out of China, I mean, out of Vietnam. They were leaving Vietnam and they saw refugees. Now, I, I want to paint the story. These are Russians. The, 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 the government, the, the system, the ideology that took me out of my country, that took away my freedoms, you know, that murdered my family, you know. And these Russians were coming out of Vietnam and they saw fleeing refugees and they, um, they saved us. They brought us on board and, um, well, they brought us on board one at a time, is what my mother said. And they, um, basically, they provide medical aid to us, you know. We were drifting out of sea for nearly a month. And they anchored us on and then they told the captain, and my mother said it to the T, they told the captain that you're lucky because if we were going into Vietnam, we would have drug you back into Vietnam. Oh, man. But because we're going out of Vietnam, we have no other choice but to take you with us. Right? So their destination was Singapore. Right? So um, they basically tug us along, you know, on their, their line. And uh, they dropped us off at a refugee camp in Indonesia. 
you know, I want to explain this, you know, the situation to you is that um, these refugee camps are, they're very dangerous, man. They're, they're a plot of land in the middle of the jungle, mm -hmm. you know, and there's maybe a control post in the middle, right, where people go there and check their mails and that's their communications, you know, uh, sponsorships to get into other countries, you know. So um, we lived on this plot of land in the middle of the jungle in a grass hut in a tropical island, you know, no food, no water is given to you. So you have to survive off the land. How long were you there for? A year and a half. So up into four and a half or five and a half? Yeah, four and a half. Four and a half years yeah. old. So we, we were living off the land and, you know, my brother growing up, he would tell me, you know, I used to gather firewood around the camp, you know, and I would see dead bodies all around the camp because people were getting murdered for supplies. You know, women were drugged into the woods and getting raped. Is this, as you said, Indo Indonesia, correct? Indonesia. Is this Indonesians? Uh, this is refugees this on is, refugees. This is South Vietnamese on South Vietnamese, yeah. not care, not taking care of each other. It's about survival. Yeah, you know, at that point, and um, you know, then you have you know bandits in these in these jungles as well. You know, I asked my mother. I said, "Okay, so how do we survive?" Well, my mother is she's hard, right? Yeah. She's badass, and um, what she told me was, you know, there were rich refugees. And they had these, you know, jewelry and stuff that they would tape to them. And she will go and basically bid because they need to sell their jewelry to eat, right? So my mother would take this jewelry for him, be the middle person, make the track through the jungle where people are murdered and raped and killed daily, go to the northern portion of the island and deal with these bandits. Wow. And sell them these valuables for money and she'll track back and take her earnings. And that's what kept us alive. Did she have to hide that from? Oh yeah. From pretty much everybody. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think like, you know, a young Asian lady tracking through the jungles, Yeah. you know what I mean? So her children can survive. Damn. Who? So, who was watching you guys? You know, I don't I don't hear too much stories on my biological father. You know, it's just they did divorce when I was very young. Um, but I'm sure he 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 had a you know helping hand on you know how we survived them in the refugee camps as well. So um so we lived off this in this plot of land. Now what's really unique was my aunt married a American Special Forces Green Beret, and he was an officer. Uh, his G-base got overran during one of the battles, right? Um, and he got stabbed by SKS bayonet uh, in the back of his rib cage area. And um, he ended up killing the, the Viet Cong. He'll, he'll make sure he'll let you know I killed him too, you know? But um, he was evacuated out of Vietnam, you know? And... Um, my aunt went with him after the, the fall of South Vietnam, and she moved over to the United States, to Fayetteville, North Carolina, right? So him being an officer in the United States military, he was able to sponsor us to come over to America. Now, what I want to 
explain to you is my mother waited a year and a half for the sponsorship. We got accepted to New Zealand. We got accepted to Canada. We could have been, you know what I mean? We could have been in all these different, Australia, we could have been in all these different countries that accepted us as refugees. America at that time, it took a little longer, you know, unpopular Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. But because of the sponsorship, we were able to get to America. And I asked my mother, you know, later on in life, I said, why? You know, why in America? She said, before I left, you know, your grandfather who, who funded the escape, who funded the escape, made me promise that if I can, if I survive this journey, then you must do what you can to become an American because you need to reunite with your sister in America. And that's the land of the free. So my mother waited, you know, literally for a year and a half. And then eventually uh, we got accepted to come to America. And uh, we made our way to Fayetteville, North Carolina, where that was the, if, if you know Fayetteville, North Carolina, anybody's ever been there, it's, uh, it's a, a town right outside of the biggest military base, biggest army base in America, you know, for special operations, the home of special operations, which was, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and that was where I was raised. Before we go into uh, Vietnam, how many of your family members made it to the U.S.? Was it your mom, your brother, and you? Was there more? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, because my mother made it, you know, my mother has a giving heart, so she she never forgot where she came from. So we were able to free my uncle from um, the prison camp. Uh, so she brought him and her family over. We brought my grandmother over, you know, so our uncle, you know, that survived the, the camps eventually came over. How many family members did not make it over? She told me like more than five. Damn. On the boat, um, you spoke about bodies being thrown overboard and people dying of uh, starvation thirst i'm sure probably sickness was in there too being out there for you know over a month how many uh how many and you said there was um maybe over 100 uh people on that boat do you have any idea i don't man you know i i did ask my mother one time i said out of you know the people that came on the boat can you tell me like roughly how many people died she goes a lot yeah obviously she doesn't you know keep track of that but she told me like when they slept um she had to sleep with all her valuables uh clothes pinned to her clothes right so we had layers of clothes we we're escaping we didn't have luggages or anything you know we had to travel very light so she would layer us with you know two outfits and then she would take our valuables as our birth certificates photos that she had reminding her her childhood. It's amazing. So some of these photos that she showed me later on in life, like you could tell that's that's been through an escape, you know? So she would stuff it into a Ziploc bag and she'll tape it and then she'll clothespin it to her body. Any jewelry that she have, any, any uh, money that she had, she'll put it into a Ziploc bag and basically clothespin it to her body. And when she slept, you know, she had to sleep sitting up, so she would sleep it uh, with this stuff underneath her so nobody can steal because everybody was stealing from each other, you know? Yeah. Survival situation. 
Do you talk with your mom a lot about uh, kind of what led up to, like, were there any early signs uh, before the war actually kicked off of, you know, certain freedoms being taken away? I don't know, maybe like we have the Second Amendment here. Were there any freedoms that just started disappearing yeah, slowly you know, but surely? I mean, you read the history on, on the Vietnam War, Ho Chi Minh, you know, he... He first came to America to ask for help because the French were trying to colonize. He was fighting against that uh, regime and, you know, Americans didn't want to get involved. So then he switched over to uh, the Russians and the Russians started helping Ho Chi Minh. So that's why he took on more of that socialist ideology. Ho Chi Minh's uh, goal was uh, to unify all of Vietnam under one rule, which was because he took on the socialist ideology the communist ideal, he wanted to press that into the South, which was more uh, democracy. You know, I think what's really unique was there was a North and South divided, you know. The South Vietnamese, which the country I was born on, was sided with Americans. They fought for democracy and freedom. The North Vietnamese fought for more of a communist ideology. You know, obviously the communists won in that country. And um, I think what's unique was like, you know, this, the crimes that happened after that, like there was no uh, humanity, there was no compassion. You know, they were trying to wipe out a whole race of people because we thought differently. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you don't hear a whole hell of a lot of stories where the Russians are showing anybody compassion. No. If there's, uh, one thing they're kind of known for, it's being pretty ruthless. And so the fact that, you know, they showed you uh, that fishing boat, you know, at least a little bit of compassion and fed you and gave you water and, and actually brought you, you know, to a, refu a refugee camp where you'd eventually, you know, get out. That's, uh, that's... I, I've never heard of the Russians doing anything no, like that. No, no. But, you know, I think what's unique is, you know, now that I'm older in life and, you know, you kind of study how the human being develops and, you know, the mind develops. And, you know, from two to four, that's where you develop a lot of your, your code, your values, your ethics, whatever you live by, right? So a lot of kids at that age, if they get abused, they're going to have a really hard time in life, you know? I mean, two to four, man, that was, yeah. that was e and R, you know? Yeah, I was trying to ENR. We were trying to survive. So, I think with that energy, you know, kind of that's what I grew up with. You know, I just couldn't pinpoint what that energy was. I was off mm -hmm. growing up. It's just, you know, how you feel like you were meant for something. You don't know what it is, or there's an emptiness inside. You just don't know what it is. You know, there was a rage, definitely. You know, but I didn't know why. You know, and it wasn't until later on is when you mature, you realize that, man, you're escaping for your life during that age when, when a normal human being is developing his code, his, his way, you know, of who he is in this world, you know, two to four. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, about as traumatic as it gets. And, uh, I'm kind of curious, you know, you said you have flashes here and there, but what, what is, if you can remember, what is your first childhood memory? Is America, it in the States? Yeah, it was America. Um, 
I mean, traumatically, you know, we, we came in America and, you know, it wasn't uh, a popular war. Vietnam was not a popular war. And, and I want to bring us back into history. And the reason why Vietnam was not a popular war was because up until then, right, you think about like World War One, World War Two, you know, Korean War, everything was censored through the military. Reporters would come in, you had your, your military reporters, and they would censor it through. And then that's what the public saw, you know. Vietnam was the first time that they allowed unprecedented re uh, covering of story. So all these reporters were coming in and obviously they didn't want to capture war, right? The image mm -hmm. of war and war is not beautiful. So when, um, when they reported that American soldiers were killing, you know, innocent people, you know, um, and they had this on video and they're sending it back. Well, that's why it, it became a non-popular war, you know? So the Americans didn't have the support, you know, and that reciprocated into the South Vietnamese. And we didn't have the support uh, once the Americans left, you know? Mm -hmm. So when we came over to America, I am the image of a hateful war to them. You know, and it was so fresh when we came over because it was right after the Vietnam War. So when we came over, man, I, my first memory was um, my mother took me to a grocery store, you know. And I remember what I saw was uh, endless food. You know, and that doesn't mean anything to anybody, but when you starved, right, when you had nothing, you know, when you come from nothing, you see endless rows of food, you know, and I remember, I'm like, wow, you know, this is amazing. And I saw the, the joy in my mother's eyes because we're not starving, you know. She grabbed her groceries and um, we came out and this older gentleman came up to us and he spit on my face and he flicked his fingers at my mother and uh, he called us all sorts of racist name. So that was my first memory, you know? So um, growing up in the States, you know, obviously after the war, it was, uh, it was a very difficult time. It was very racist, very yeah. racist times in America. I mean, that has not only coming, you know, back to, or coming not back to for you, but coming to the U.S., uh, you know, from Vietnam, but you moved to, Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is probably the biggest special operations base out of all branches in the U.S. And special operations, in a lot of times, are you know the backbone of the war. They generally see the most action, and to have you move there. Uh, you know, and, and what they were doing can, you know, as you know, as well as I do, can create a lot of hate. And uh, so I'm sure that was uh, extremely tough to deal with. And uh, but before we get into that, let's just take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll pick up with uh, your journey in Vietnam. <laughs> Absolutely. Nutrient Survivor. 
feed your freedom. All right, two, we're back from the break and you're in Fayetteville, North Carolina. You've just uh, immigrated into the United States and uh, you, your mother and your brother are in a town that holds more special operations commandos uh, than than any other town in the United States who are all, you know, fresh out of the Vietnam War. And um, so what was that, what was that like growing up uh, with that hatred and, and Yeah, you uh, know, when we first moved to the States, um, we lived with my uncle and my aunt, you know, and they're, my uncle's an officer. So, you know, that was the best life I ever seen, like, you know, coming from the oppressed, you know, escaping Vietnam. I never lived in such a huge house, you know. Um, so it was a huge eye opener. So we lived with my uncle for a few months until we got on our feet. It was my my biological father, my mother, my brother, and myself, you know. And, um, you know, just during that time frame, I was trying to get climatized to this environment, you know, I was in. It was so much going on there. And like you say, it was a home of special operations. My uncle was Special Forces Green Beret. So when I walked down, I saw all his awards, you know, all his war stuff. I thought it was really cool, really unique. Um, eventually, my my biological father and my mother, we moved out and we went to, um, it was a very low income part of town. We had nothing, you know. When we left Vietnam, we have absolutely nothing. We have no country, has no freedom. We have nothing, you know. Um, so my father and mother, would they would work odd jobs because my mother always felt education was the answer to freedom. You know, she said, if you have an education, you can never be oppressed. Hmm. So it means a lot to me if you concentrate on school, you know. Yeah. So we lived in a, um, gosh, man, a really small apartment in a really part, uh, poor part of town. The only furniture that we had in this apartment was one full-size mattress, one used full-size mattress that we all would sleep on. We had no other furniture, you know? We were very poor. And how old are you at this time? Uh, about six. Six? Mm-hmm. So you had a, a, a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, and then two adults, yep. mom and dad, right, on a full-size which is just a little bit bigger than a yeah. twin size bed. Mm-hmm. So my mother, you know, she would, uh, we have other refugees, so they would donate clothes to us. And so we had like really like four hand-me-downs of clothes, you know, holes all over, you know, holes in our shoes. Uh, but my mother appreciated them, thank them for, you know, their donations. And she would stay up at night and sew up the, the holes on my clothes. She would fix the shoes so we can attend school. Do you remember your parents' demeanor? Did you, did they have a, po- a positive demeanor? I mean, it's, it's my mother, a situation. My mother it was born a year to Tiger, so she has that aggressive, <laughs> aggressive attitude, you know? Like, yeah. you step out of line, she'll whoop your ass kind of <laughs> attitude. You know, yeah. my father, my stepfather was very, he's a quiet professional. 
Did you know how poor you were at the time, or did you just think? No, I just thought this was it, right? This was just life. I mean, we did go, I I would tell you, days without eating a few times. My mother would obviously give us the food before she would eat herself, you know? So they went more days starving than we did. But we did go, you know, days starving growing up. Along with that, you know, we started attending school, you know. And that's when you really see the uh, the hate in in our culture, you know, the hate to the Vietnamese people. The, um, you know, one of my first teachers openly discussed that she does not support the flux of refugees coming into her hometown. You know, and she expressed it numerous times. And obviously the kids, um, they would pick on us because we're poor and we look different. How many Vietnamese kids went to the school? We were the only one that was in, besides my brother that I knew, you know, it wasn't like that much Vietnamese refugees uh, coming in. I remember getting to America was very difficult. And a lot of the refugees, they settled in more of California area. We settled in North Carolina because my uncle. Yeah. Right. So you think about like the biggest military base, right? You have all these veterans that are fresh out of war, okay? Then you have they some of them marry foreign women, you know? So you have all these people, right, within this small town, different cultures and everything. But it was a very racist time. When I say that is, you know, I don't throw out that word lightly, you know? But it was because of the the post-Vietnam War hatred, you know. I was told, I was called by many names growing up. Yeah, yeah I can see that being, uh, you know, ex- extreme racism, you know. And uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, that's a hot topic for today. Even, you know, there Asian racism that's going on and... And in uh, all the other communities, and but somehow you've gotten through it, and uh, and uh, I kind of you know I want to talk about how you how you did get through that, and I think a lot of times you know people that either feel they're being oppressed or are being oppressed, they tend to go down that victim road, and you know unfortunately it is going to take effort on your part to, to, to turn yourself other, turn yourself into something other than a victim. And, um, there's not a whole lot of people doing that these days. So I really want to pick your brain on, on how you kind of got over that and, and, and how you became, you know, the success story, the success story that you've become today with, with Ronin tactics and an impeccable military career and and everything that goes with that. You know, there's there's evils all the world, Sean. You know that. You know, traveling around as a Navy SEAL, there's evils everywhere, man. So it's it's uh we can dwell on what we can't change, or we can work on what we can. And that lesson was taught to me at a very young age by my mother. You know, let me let me explain this. You know, my mother would, we were very poor, but she would cook 
and she would deliver food to the other refugees that were uh, in town. You know, there was not that much, but she would go to these communities and she would give. And I remember uh, I asked her, I said, you know, why, why are you doing this? They don't really appreciate it. You know, it's being kind of defiant at that age. And she pulled the car over and she grabbed my hand and she said, look at me. And I looked over at her and she goes, no matter how bad off we are in life, if we can, we must help others. Somehow those words kind of resonated. And obviously I can talk about that day even to today. So that day had a lot of impact. But I want to talk about this day. You know, I want to explain this to you. So substitute teacher days, man, they were the worst for me. <laughs> Let me explain this to you. My Vietnamese name is pronounced Tu Tung Lam. Imagine trying to pronounce that, <laughs> right? Tu yeah. Tung Lam. I pronounce my name Two Lam, so you, you guys don't butcher my Vietnamese name, you know? So on Substitute Teacher's Day, they'll try to pronounce my names, all right? And they'll butcher my name. And then that allow for all the other, you know, students to mock me and make fun of me and throw paper at me or whatever, right? Because my name sounds weird and I'm different. Well, on this specific uh, substitute teacher day, I had this bully, you know, in third grade that really hated me. He hated who I was, the way I looked. He hated that I was poor. Um, and he wouldn't make it a, a daily routine to pick on me, you know? But on this substitute teacher day, he started in on me pretty early, you know. It was really loud, and and the substitute teacher didn't want to deal with it, so he told me and the bully to go down to the principal's office. I don't even know how I got in trouble. I was yeah. the victim, right? So we walked down to the principal's office, and, you know, it was very racist times, you know. So uh, the principal uh, said, sit here until your parents come. Well, my mother don't have a car. So I knew I was going to be sitting here for a while, you know. So the principal was sitting right here and the bully was, you know, across the room in the, in the chair. And I was sitting here in the chair and I was really, I don't know, man, I was just really defeated, you know. And um, the mother comes in and uh, she demanded to know what happened, right. And the principal stood up. He goes, that boy right there, he looked at me. He called him a chink. He sat back down and continued on his on his day like it didn't even affect him. She went over and grabbed her son and she walked up to me and she stood there. So it forced me to kind of look up at her. And she had this look of uh, uh, of hate, you know, and she's told me that um that my kind don't belong here. And I need to go back home to my country. You know, I, I swear, man, at that point, um, I was probably at the lowest point of my life. You know? Wow. You know, third was, grade. Third grade, I was yeah, really defeated. Yeah, but an defeated. adult telling you that. Yeah, I was really defeated that day. I was having a bad day. Um, and I came home, and I, I made a promise to myself that day that, um, that I'm stronger than hate, you know? And what's that mean? What's that even look like? I, I I got tired of being this weak child. The mindset mm -hmm. of being defeated. You know, I hated that. 
So what was really unique about this was that, you know, eventually my biological mother and father were divorced and my mother remarried to American Special Forces Green Beret. He was a ex-drill sergeant Green Beret, very strict military discipline. So imagine going from no discipline to a life of getting up at 4.30 in the morning, saluting the flag, raising the flag, hands over your heart, saying the national anthem, making your bed where he can bounce a quarter off. If it's not good enough, he'll rip everything back out. Going from zero discipline to that and then working in, so he had a company, a family company, and we would work in the family company in between going to school and we didn't have days off. It was seven days a week, 4.30 in the morning, up in the morning. Ballad of Green Beret, I can still sing it to this day. National anthem, hand over your heart. We had a dress code to go to school. I couldn't wear jeans. I had to wear slacks, right? Button down shirt. It was that discipline. Going from zero to 100, right? So it was a very difficult time, you know, even though I love my stepfather and he gave me the discipline I needed in life. But man, it was a hard pill to swallow at eight years old, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I knew he was a Green Beret. I knew he was Special Forces and, and stuff like this. And, you know, people always ask me now that I'm Ronin, you know, they said, you know, you know, you follow a path of Bushido the way, you know, you say it. What's that mean? And why you're Vietnamese? So why why are you following a, uh, a Japanese code of honor, samurai, you know? So I want to bring this story to you. So when my stepfather, I mean, when my, my father left us, you know, I didn't have any communications with him. And it was a very difficult time for me because I do love my father. I love my stepfather, but I did love my, my father as well. You know, we had history. He escaped us from Vietnam, gave us our freedoms. So, you know, I didn't hear from him. And uh, my mother brought in a box one day. And uh, my mother said, this is from your father. You know, I tell you, Sean, I didn't know how to take it, man, you know? So I put that box across the room and I remember sitting in my room and I had the doors closed. I was sitting in my room looking at this cardboard box. And uh, I thought about my my father. So finally I had the courage, you know, to go up to the box and I opened up the box and there was these, uh, there was four VHS tapes. Remember the VHS? Yeah. <laughs> right? So it was four VHS tapes and... um. And it was obviously dub tapes, right? And it had Vietnamese writing on these tapes. So I didn't know. I don't. I don't read Vietnamese, you know. So I, I remember just randomly picking one of the tapes out. And I pop it in a VHS player, and the first tape was the Art of Budo. You know, if you don't know what Budo is, it's a combat skill that the samurais use, the martial arts they use in war stating periods Japan. Right, and they're breaking down into different martial arts, but it was the combat side of being samurai. It was the martial arts, right? And it's the way, the path. And I was, I swear, that was the first tape that I saw at eight years old, and it intrigued me. To live a life like that, wow. You know, you gotta understand, I was defeated yeah. at that point. I wanted strength. How old are you at this eight. point? Eight? Yeah, I wanted strength. I wanted a change in my life. And I didn't know how to get there, you know, even though my father was a, you know, he was a great man, escaped, but he wasn't the warrior, right? Mm -hmm. 
So um, the the other three tapes were like Fist of Fury, you know, Inner Drive, Bruce Lee stuff. So that's why I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of Bruce Lee, you know. But throughout my childhood years, I grew up to revisiting the art of Budo over and over and over, and I romanticized about being this path, this way. What is it, right? So, you know, during the 80s, uh, special forces were uh, deployed by Ronald Reagan to go fight in the drug wars. Remember those days? Mm-hmm. Or the drug war days, they would go down, my, my, my stepfather would go down to Central America and South America, and he would train fit ops, and they would do the counter-drug missions, you know? And, you know, he had his teammates over, and they will They'll talk over their their team room talks in this house, and I'll be in the next room, like trying to listen in. <laughs> like, what do you mean you free to oppress? What's that mean, right? Yeah. And you know, uh, eventually I put it all together. The way, the path, you know, what is the way? The way is to to better humanity, to better yourself. And a warrior's path is extremely hard, right? So I was able to take that tape that I was viewing and tied it into a higher purpose, which was, you know, because I was indoctrinated more into a Green Beret lifestyle growing up, I chose the Green Berets. I knew their mission. And their mission was to free to oppress. It was to, to fight for the people that were like my mother and myself and my brother and my, my father. It was to fight for their freedoms. Man, if I could be a force to go around the world free and oppressed and enslaved in modern day world, that's the way for me. That's what I want to do. So I'm this weak little frail eight-year-old with this concept of the way. <clears throat> right. So, you know, we we, you know, we my father was a enlisted man, you know, he worked in his job. We're we're not rich, you know, we're not poor like I used to be. We ate every day. He made sure that we were taken care of, but we did work. We worked very hard. You know, um, my stepfather loved us like his own. He he raised us very strict, though, mm-hmm. you know, but that's just the way it was. When I was researching you, and uh, I don't know if I read this or heard it, um, but you had talked about, so it sounds like the Bushudo, uh tapes were a major turning point. Uh, for your childhood and 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 to overcome some of the racism and and everything else that you had been through as well. We also were talking about um, and I forgive me, I can't remember if it was your uncle or your father, but you were driving, and they were saying, you know, to sometimes <clears throat> you're gonna feel down. Commando. Yep. My uncle would. Do you pick want me to up. be a fucking commando? Sorry. And that that resonated with me, you know. And and I thought about that and the impact that could have on anybody, let alone. Uh, I believe you said you were eleven at the time. Did that have a major impact? You know, I love my uncle, man. What a great American. You know, to this day, he would uh, pick us up. He would pick me up on a Sunday and he would drive me to Dairy Queen. You know, it was just uncle and nephew time, you know. And my uncle, he's he's very uh, blunt. He don't hold he don't hold the punches back. You yeah. Know? Um, he's driving his little Volkswagen dune buggy that he reconstructs for hobbies, you know. And he goes, Two, 
I want to tell you something. You know, the days that you're feeling bad, the days that you want to quit, you need to ask yourself. It just out of the blue. He just told me. You need to ask yourself, you want to be a fucking commando tonight? You know, when the bones hurt and you're, you're aching from your injuries, do you want to be a fucking commando? When it's raining and it's wet outside and it's five o'clock in the morning, you know you have to go for a run because that's the thing to do. And you're feeling sorry for yourself. Do you want to be a commando today? At 11 years old, can you imagine that impact? Can you imagine the discipline of being a commando? You know, it takes so much discipline, right? To be mm -hmm. there. Commitment, discipline, day in, day out. It's not just a way of a weapon in war. It's, it's the whole encompass of life, right? To look at life differently as a warrior, you know? So he, he truly taught me to never quit, to never give up, no matter what. And, you know, it drives home what my mother did, you know, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, doesn't matter. You know, so I was taught at a young age that the conditions and circumstances doesn't define us as a human being. We define ourselves by the actions we take daily. Do you want to be a commando today? You know, so at 11, I, I realized that, you know, and, and I, I tell you, Sean, you know, getting back to the racism, I didn't get over it. You don't get over uh, uh, hate like that. You know, I was bullied through my junior high years, my my high school years. I was called by racist names during training, during my military career, all the way to the end. You know, I'm not saying everybody. I'm saying there's bad apples everywhere you go. Yeah. And there's racism and hate wherever you go. And racism is a mean to control a human being. Right? Mm -hmm. you, you think about like some of the countries you went into, the people that were oppressed and enslaved. That's a mean of controlling a human being. To degrade a human being, to spit on him. Right? You're oppressing the person. So that's why it was so strong for me to live this life, you know, as a Green Beret, because the model is the free to oppressed, you know, and I knew that that was my ticket. That was my ticket. Maybe you didn't get over it, but you definitely got through it. And um, so after watching the VHS tapes and in uh, the words of encouragement from your uncle <laughs> what was kind of the next encounter like and how did how did you i mean i know you carry a lot of that but you did get through it and so i guess kind of what i'm asking is what what was the next encounter like how did you how did you roll with the punches you know at 11 years old i knew i wanted to be a green beret at 16 it was already programmed in my training, my timeline, right, that uh, I needed to start training at 16 to start developing the cardiovascular, the strength I needed in order to pass through this rigorous training that I, I needed to go to. You know, at 16, I started reading. Uh, I read since I was 13, so I read a lot of the warrior philosophies, a lot of the book. I read the Book of Five Rings when I was 13 years old. Wow. You know, I read The Art of War and I did a thesis on The Art of War in high school. So these were the subjects of interest throughout my life. I knew I wanted to live a warrior's life, you know. And at 16, I started the, the training. It just intensified 
closer to I got to the timeline, which at 18 was when uh, I enlisted in the military. Now, I want to I want to tell you this story, right? My mother wanted me to be a doctor, wanted me to be a lawyer, engineer, anything but a soldier because, gosh, man, right? She escaped Vietnam. She lost her freedom. She knows what war smells, looks, and feels like. And she don't want her son to do that. Yeah. But because I was indoctrinated into the special forces life, and, you know, my uncle never pressured me, man. He never said, hey, when you're going to be a Green Beret, you should be a Green My stepfather has never uttered those words, you should be a Green Beret one day. Never. I felt no pressure from them. But I felt a draw to that world, right? So at 17, I, um, I went down to the MEP Center and I enlisted into the military. And there was no special forces contracts coming in. You can't just enlist out of the street. You have to be... Uh, E5 in the Army, right? Or you have to have this amount of time in the Army. So either rank or a certain time in the Army. It's one, and one of them is waivable, you know? So I'm like, oh, I can't go Green Beret, but I can be an infantryman. I can learn all these basic skills, right? So um, I enlisted in the Army, and um, I went through infantry basic training, and I chose to be an 82nd uh, paratrooper. And the reason why is because that'll put me back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where I can be around my parents, right? So when I came there uh, to the 82nd, it was a real funny story. We They lined all the, the new recruits up, the privates, right? So I came there, I'm spit shine boots, you know, starch fatigues. Uh, I was so proud of being a soldier. And um, the first sergeant lined us all up and there was uh, at least eight of us privates in this in this uh, office, right? And you had the first sergeant out there and and first sergeant, you know, yelling at us and calling us a piece of shit and whatever, right? And um, the commander then comes in, we slap to attention, and he asks one question. He asks one question. He goes, who wants to go to ranger school? We're all privates, you know, with less than, I think I had... Oh, gosh, less than a year in the Army, <laughs> right? So I raised my hand. And I said, I want to be Ranger qualified. And um, he looked at the first sergeant, and then he, he looked at me, and then he walked back in his office and closed the door. The first sergeant kicked everybody else out of the room. And he goes, Private Lamb, stay here. So I stayed there, slapped to, you know, I was at uh, parade rest, and he said, uh, so you want to be Ranger qualified, huh? So there was, um, you know, the tile floors, you know, the the square tile floors. Mm -hmm. So he uh, he smoked me. So smoking me means um, physical training. So in starch uniform, spit shine boots, you know, I'm doing burpees. I'm, you know, push-ups into that tile floor. One of those tile floor is full of my sweat. He tried to make me quit. I was dehydrated and it went on for hours, the hazing, the yelling. And, and finally he, you know, he got me back up. And he said, how do you feel now? I said, I still want to go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, within, you know, I swear within four days, I was at the Recondo training site in outskirts of North Carolina where they run the pre-ranger course. I graduated with honors. 
you know, because I didn't have any bad habits. I listened to what the instructor said, and I did it to the T. Yeah. You know, all these other senior guys, they would hear what the instructor say, and they'll try to war game, and they'll do it their own way. I didn't know anything else, so I listened to what they had to say, and I did it to the T, you know? And I graduated that, and I went to Ranger training, and graduated Ranger school, and and I was now I found I was this E4, right? <laughs> that's Ranger qualified in the infantry unit, and... You know, it was great, but I wanted to do more. So I tried out for the Long Range Reconnaissance Team. Now, it's really hard to leave the 82nd when you get in, right? Because they lock you in, they invest money into you. And they need you, they're, you know, they want to grow you into a leadership position. But I wanted something else, you know? So I tried out for the Long Range Reconnaissance Team, which is a descendant of the LERP teams in Vietnam, the Long Range Patrol teams. So their mission is to forward deploy. I was on an amphibious team, so we were forward deploy on an amphibious team. We were inserted in by uh, helicasts and zodiacs, and I would lay on and report what I see, you know? And uh, we learned the uh, advanced communication at the time, which uh, VHF. Um, jungle antenna. So I learned all that, you know, mm -hmm. at a very young age. And my time came up. I made E5. Year and a half in the Army, I was E5. I'm like, that's that's a criteria that's, to go Special uh, Forces. Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 definitely a fast track. Yeah, yeah. Because nobody wanted Rangers training, right? They didn't want to go through all this hard school. And for me, it was just... Um, I had something to prove to myself. I didn't want to be this weak human being anymore. Nutrient survival, loaded with 40 essential nutrients. So you, you know, you were chasing it, you know, from the get go. Since 11 years old, you were chasing, you know, that lifestyle. Was there what conflicts were going on uh, that early in your career, if any? You know, my first uh, phase of my career, it was. It was just smooth sailing, man. It was education, military education after military education. Uh, I was young. I was fit. I trained since I was 16. So I was able to pass through to really physically demanding schools at a very young age. You know? Um, so when I made E5, I, I realized that that's waivable now. I can apply for the Special Forces. So I submitted my packet. I applied for uh, Special Forces Selection and Training out of Fort Bragg, 21 day uh, select. And then um, I went through the pipeline for uh, weapons training uh, for the Q course. So then I went through the weapons training uh, phase of the course, and then we went into unconventional warfare phase, you know, and um, I got orders to go to 7th group, which is at the time located in North Carolina. What I found out was my stepfather was talking to the guy who worked at Brian Hall, who runs orders, and said, yeah, he needs to be here. <laughs> and I found this out because uh, 
after unconventional warfare phase, I was in the mess hall and I saw uh, Mr. Joe Lupiak, which he's a legend in special forces. He he was part of the Sante raid, you know, and now he's this retired civilian who runs uh, orders where you, they're going to put these new candidates, these students, you know, when you yeah. graduate. And he always talks like this. Hey, my man, come over here. Hey, my man. Right. So I came out and was like, Mr. Lupiak, you know, I'm, he I knew him since I was a child. You know, and I'm coming out of unconventional warfare phase. And I say, Mr. Lupiak, how's it going? He goes, hey, my man, come over here. And he, and he sat me down. He goes, hey, I got you in seventh group. You know, I know that you want to stay here with your parents. And, you know, I love my parents. I still do to this day, but I had a, a, a journey. You know, I wanted to go to Asia. I wanted to go back to affect the country that, you know, I was born in, if I can possibly do. You know, it was a long shot. So I said, Mr. Mr. Lupiak, I really wanted to go out to first first group. He goes, your dad ain't gonna like that, you know? Um, but he changed my orders and uh, he rerouted me to first special forces group out of Okinawa, Japan. Okinawa, Japan, that's where all the seniors are at. You know, like the guys that did their team time, Okinawa, Japan is a four deployed uh, battalion that affects Asia. You know, you're in that continent. So it was very hard to get out there. It's the first assignment, but that was my first assignment, Okinawa, Japan. So here I am, 21 years old, went out to Okinawa, Japan, and uh, I was assigned to a uh, combat search and rescue team, CSAR team. So during that time, it was really heavy. Um, reconnaissance of North Korea. You know, they had the no-dong missiles that can strike, uh, you know, U.S. soil. So that was a really concern for us. And then, you know, the uh, unstable country, you know, the dictator. So uh, we were doing a lot of reconnaissance around South Korea, working with the, the, the commando force. I was the CSAR team. So when the pilots are flying over there, they were to get shot down. Then we were the teams that come in with a two-man PJ packet, heavy guns, and we would come in and do offsets to try to rescue these, these pilots. So that was my first assignment. It was cool. You know, I went through a lot of training, um, but not my thing. Yeah. You know, you just know that that's not what you're destined to do. Going back to training, <clears throat> you know, people – are always dying to know kind of what got you through it. And, you know, I guess every once in a while you meet the guys that say that, you know, they just breeze right through it. But I would say for 99% of us, that is definitely not the case. Mm -hmm. um, so did you have any hiccups? Did you have any, is there any particular point in training where you were ready to call it? You know, you, it was, you know, I'm done. During selection and training, uh, during um, the special forces less uh, assessment selection process, I was uh, so we we stayed in these barracks, right? So everybody stayed in these like confined barracks, and I went in February. It was very cold in North Carolina during that time, and if one person gets sick in the bay, everybody else gets sick in the bay. It's just that's the way it is. Well, we had one guy get sick, and I caught a flu. And uh, we were doing land navigation that night. So 
we're we're doing the, the map and compass. They're teaching us how how to dead reckon. They're teaching us terrain orientation. So advanced land navigation training. It's not like a basic land navigation training because we had to pass through uh, what's called the Star Exam, which is one of the the hardest land navigation course in the United States Army. So during that time, man, I was coming down with the flu, right? I had, gosh, man, I my I had a high temperature over 100, and you know, I was I was cold, I was breaking out of sweat, and I really wanted to quit. I really wanted to quit that night. Well, I tell you, my uncle is uh special forces, you know, mm -hmm. and he was the commander of the SWIC assessment and selection during that time frame that went through. It was his last class before he took over uh, Just Mag Thai. So this was his last class before he takes over a different command. He was in charge of the whole thing. Before I went through, I said, hey, look, I don't, I don't want any, you know, I know there were family members and, you know, I don't want any hammy else, you know, don't, don't look after me. He goes, oh, you don't have to worry. <laughs> he goes, if you don't have it, you don't have it. Yeah. So I wanted to quit. So at night, I, I wanted to quit so bad, man. Right. And um, I remember it was thundering out, lightning outside. It was raining really hard. I was feeling sorry for myself. It was two o'clock in the morning after tea, you know, just after a, a got ran down to the ground during that day of, you know, uh, assessment and selection. And at night is when we go into our academics, you know, so we we're just messed up. And I wanted to quit, and I remember uh, the NCOIC said, on your feet, and the lights shut off. Boom. So I'm like, oh, God, you know? So I got up, and my uncle walked across to the stage. It was, wasn't planned because we talked about it later. He goes, oh, I was just paying a visit, right? But he, he walked up to the stage, and the lights turned back on. Everybody's on their feet. You know, you're a full bird colonel standing there. And he said a speech that I'll never forget, man. Walk or die was the speech. And he talked about uh, Cabana Tuan, about when, you know, when we were engaged in, the, uh, in combat against the Japanese and the islands of the Philippines, how the Americans and the Filipino soldiers were captured and forced to march the Bataan Death March. And if one of the soldiers would fall back past hand-touching distance, then the Japanese soldiers will pull them, rip their ID tag, and shoot them where they, you know, where mm. they're taking a knee. The Bataan Death March. So he was talking about the Bataan Death March. And he said to the general, man, there was, gosh, man, I would say there was at least 400 candidates out there. We graduated with 70. So 400 candidates, he's looking across, he didn't even see me, he's looking across and he said, march or die, when you want to quit, you walk until you die, right? This is, it's not if you want it or not, if you want it, you're willing to die for it, you know? And he talked about the Bataan Death March and I'm like, I'm going to die here tonight. <laughs> I'm going to die here because I'm not going to quit now. I'm not, that, that moment came. Let me tell you how toxic that 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 is. You know, I'm talking to the viewers because you understand. If you want to quit, and you actually go through with quitting, you you establish that. Yeah. You can never ever go back from that again. 
You quit once, you're going to quit again. You quit again, it becomes a norm, right? So I knew that at that moment, if I quit, I would never go through this training. I would never make it, you know? So I was willing to die that night. So that night, you know, after land navigation, we, 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 uh, we went to go eat um, our breakfast, right, after all the training. And there was one guy who smuggled a, uh, a Motrin, 800 milligram. That, he had to smuggle it in, right? Yeah. And I was part of his team, and he said, hey, too, what's going on? I said, can I have that Motrin, please? And he gave it to me. Right? That's like Ranger candy. He Hell gave, yeah, it he gave is. me that Motrin, right? And it broke my flu, man. It broke the flu, and then I was able to continue on with training and and graduate. You know, did you ever feel any? Uh, I mean, do you think that the fact that your stepdad was a Green Beret, your uncle was a Green Beret, sounds like he uh, had a lot of inspiration? And uh, and uh, you know, do you want to be a fucking commando? Uh, was there any fear of letting them down? Oh and, yeah. And uh, even to this day. Even to this day. Even to this day. I think about them all the time, both of them, even to this day. That's part of what, you know, that is what got me through training is uh, it got to the point where I just, I didn't, I didn't care about myself anymore. It was just the fact that I didn't want to, I just didn't want to let my old man down. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of, I, I did not want to make that call saying, Hey, Dad, I fucking quit. And uh, and uh, so I was just curious, you know. There was one time in Ranger School, uh, we had to airborne infiltration to Fort Benning, Georgia, and it was an 18-mile force march. When I say force march, they're running at that running pace, and you have, you know, combat load and weapons on you. So we had to airborne infiltrate in uh, in Fort Benning. We form a road, a force road march uh basic formation and we start humping it for 18 miles very fast you know and you know during that time man i was i was 19 years old i don't know how to be a soldier right so i'm like what is a better way to break in a new pair of boots than to road march it in right didn't think yeah right so we, we airborne dropped in that, that morning and we, we set up for um, their forced road march and they started running. Guys were dropping like flies, right? Guys were quitting. And, you know, sometimes, you know, somehow I held on, man. You know, I, I, I basically light trot behind people and uh, we, we made this turn into Darby, right? So Darby was a long dirt trail road. It went into Darby phase of training, which is small unit tactics, raids, ambushes. And man, I, I'll tell you, Sean, like I had no skin on the back of my foot, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I had blisters throughout all of Ranger School, all the way down to Florida phase, you know, from that road march. Um, I was suffering from heat exhaustion. Like I could feel my body shutting down where I'm falling asleep walking. Like, you know, like you're heated, like you're about to die. And I was falling behind on the road march. As soon as we turned, man, I only had a thousand meters left on this road march. Yeah. And I was contemplating on quitting. That's how painful it was. But somehow I just put one foot in front of the other. And then the instructor came up behind me. He said, if you fall one more step behind the pack, I'm going to pull you from training. 
And there's no lie, this is what I did. I punched myself in the face. And I continued to punch myself in the face because I was falling asleep walking, yeah. you know? And so that was the only way that I could stay awake. So I punched myself in the face, my nose bleeding, kept on punching myself in the face. And this is what the ranger instructor said, drive on. <laughs> um, yeah, man. So obviously, you know, if the training is hard, that that mindset is normal to want to quit. It's yeah. just, you know, what do you do? What do you do when that that moment of struggle? Do you want to be a commando? Yeah, I mean, that's you know, that's what they're looking for. They want to see who who's gonna fucking switch it on when the going gets tough, yeah. and and the going gets tough real fast yeah. in those outfits. And uh, which is why, you know, there's such a high attrition rate. But uh, another question that I'm curious about is when you do feel pain, um, and I'll give you, you know, just one example of mine. Do you have a certain thing that you pinpoint all your attention on? So um, just like as an example, for me personally, going through buds, I was about a buck 19 soaking wet. Yeah. And, uh, and the water's, you know, it's fucking cold there. One of the one of their tools that they like to use is to uh, they utilize that cold and get guys to hype out. Well, guess what? I'm 18, 19 years old, a buck 20 soaking wet. And uh, so I'm one of the first ones to hype out and cold affects me a lot faster than anyone else. So, you know, to, what I would do is believe it or not, I would try to accelerate the hypothermia kicking in. And the only thing I would concentrate on and when we were getting surf tortured or um, or whatever it is out in, the, out in the ocean, you know, constantly going back and forth is I would concentrate only on making my body stop shaking to rewarm myself because I knew I was going to hype out anyways. And then it, in the initial stages, you you feel no pain anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm wondering if you had any particular thing that you focused on, uh, whether that be, you know, your 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 stepdad and your uncle or the Bushudo, uh code or is there anything? You know, you, you always hear me say, you know, Sean, smile and be brave. You always hear that, you know, when I'm scared, when I'm facing it, when I'm suffering, my mother told me at a young age, smile and be brave, right? What's that mean? You know, it, it goes into a science because the mind is connected to the body. If your mind is telling you, if you're smiling, you're telling your mind that everything's okay and your body's gonna feel that. You know, so when I'm suffering, I wanna quit or I'm afraid, I'm smile, man, I'm, I'm brave. Right, because I'm tying in that neurological pathway from my mind recognizes a smile, the muscles, the exercising those smi the the, smi uh, the muscles of a smile is connected to the brain, and that's telling my brain through my body everything's okay. Right, so when when the suffering is there, you know I smile. Interesting. Well, too. Let's take a quick break again, and uh, when we come back, I want to talk about how, you know, what it's like being 21 years old on an SF team back then, and uh, and talking about how it came full circle from being the oppressed to 
freeing the oppressed. Nutrient survival. Feed your freedom. All right, two, we're back from the break again, and uh, you're now in an SF team. You're 21 years old. It's your time to free the oppressed. So where are you going to take us? So, you know, after graduating the Q course in unconventional warfare phase, you have to go through language training and then you have to go through uh, survival escape resistance training. And then I made it to the A team. So as you're a pipeline in the Navy, I mean, it takes a long time to train one of us to even get out the door, right? Yeah. So um, I got on the teams and... Um, you know, we got some cool stuff on the teams, you know? So that was my first exposure to the toys of SOCOM. You oh, know, nice. The dirt bikes, the ATVs, you know, the M4s with the mod kit. So I was like really, <laughs> really in that world, right? And uh, I got assigned to a CSAR team. And one of my first um, cross, so we, as Green Berets, we, we cross train with different countries all the time. So the tactics that we learn you know, just from the Q course, it's not just it. We're learning from the Malaysian commandos. We're learning from the British commandos. We're learning all around the world. You know, you're you're extracting information. So truly, like, your tactics is very unconventional, you know. So one of the first uh, training that I went through was a uh, Malaysian uh, tracking school. So they drop us in uh, Pulata, Malaysia, where we have these Malaysian commandos, right? So you think about the Malaysians, they fought the wars in the jungles and, you know, against the British, Rhodesians. So they have years and years of combat experience working in this type of jungle vegetation. Um, so the, the course was roughly about six weeks and uh, I went through Malaysian uh, tracking school. I want to tell you the story. So we were tracking. I was the lead tracker, right? So lead tracker is you have a team of trackers behind you, but you're the lead tracker. So you have a tracking stick, right? And uh, what a tracking stick is, you know, the human body can only step so much. So if you lose a, a, a track, then you take the tracking stick and there can only, they can only pivot their body so much. Then you take the normal step from one step to the next and you have this tracking stick and somewhere within that range of that tracking stick, you should be able to pick up hmm. the signs again and tracking, right? I couldn't pick up anything, right? So I lost, I lost the track and I couldn't pick up anything. And I, you know, I was pretty good at tracking. I, my teams are, I just got these teams. I definitely don't want to let my teams down, right? So I couldn't pick up anything. And I saw in the distance, there was a broken twig. I'm like, That's it. That's the scent, right? Yeah. So I ran up to it and I started seeing vegetation break and, you know, I started tracking again. You know, it was really weird because, you know, I had my backpack, combat equipment, and it required me to, like, get on all fours and start crawling around to, to, to find this tracking. I tracked down a tiger. Get this. Are you shitting me? Yeah. 
A yeah. tiger? I tracked down a wild tiger. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was in the distance. I saw the track. Um, apparently, that thing uh, must have ate something, right, because it didn't attack me. <laughs> it just ignored me, actually, and just walked off. But, you know, and what I want to explain is, like, a lot of the training, man, we die in training more than we die in combat. <clears throat> you know, you push training to that 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 edge. Yeah. Um, after that, I went into um, Malaysian survival school. Hold on. Hold on. Rewind. You just tracked a fucking tiger down. Did it see you? Yeah, it saw me. Were you armed or were I you was running around with, with a rubber a, duck? No, M4. No, I was actually using a M16A1 rifle. Nice. Because uh, when we went through the training, the Malaysians were still running it. Uh, you know, M16A1s. So I had an M16A1 <laughs> Vietnam Air um, AR, and um, yeah, that's what we're that's what we're rolling with. How close were? How close did you get to it? Oh uh, man, it was probably about twenty yards away. Oh shit! Yeah, and you see wild boars. I mean, you see wildlife out there. It's just you're you're in their habitat. Did it see you? Yeah, it saw me and it just kind of just walked off into the jungle. What'd you do? Oh, it was, okay. I shit my pants. Yeah, <laughs> like, you I'll know. bet you did. Yeah, I mean, the a wild tiger is just bigger in in real life uh, in in its natural habitat than uh, what you see in a zoo. Like in a zoo, it's like, yeah, it's a tiger. Yeah. You got a huge glass cage. I mean, no, it's there in the, in, you know, in the wild, right? So, um we would sleep um, high on vegetation because the at night, that's when we get snatched. You know, the jungle comes alive at night. Yeah. I thought I had run into some encounters in the jungle, but I didn't run into any tigers, yeah. that's for damn sure. Yeah. In fact, in Africa, we had lions track us. You know, we had to surround these vehicles and put, you know, snipers up on the, uh, the top of the roofs of these uh, land rovers, and we would look through our thermals and we'll see the the lions you know so what i'm saying is just because we're out there doing military ops i mean you can die from you know wildlife yeah so went through that and then um i graduated that i had maybe two days off on the weekends i went to kuala lumpur and hung out down there and then we went back reported back uh to camp and i went into malaysian survival training Malaysian survival training, man, was just miserable. It was a miserable time. I just realized how horrible I am at surviving <laughs> in that environment. And and one of the trainings that they had us do is we just had jungle fatigues. Um, they gave us a machete and a chicken, and they drop us off at a uh, at a point in the jungle, and you live in that point. There's leeches. You're in the rain jungles. There's leeches. There's wildlife and everything else. And all you have is a machete and this chicken, right? So during this this portion of training, somehow I just developed a friendship with this chicken, right? So um, I would walk the chicken. It was on a noose, and uh, it was really lonely in the jungle. So I had this companion. It reminded me of that movie, uh, Castaway. Yeah, with Wilson. Where Tom Hanks, and he he made uh, a friend with that uh, volleyball, right? 
that was what it was. You know, I was in the middle of the jungle and nothing was around me. And I had this chicken, right, that um, that kept me alive. And when I say that, it 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 would make noises when things come around, you know. <laughs> so um, I had a noose on him, like a, you know, you put on a dog, and that thing just hung around me. So I survived through that without killing the chicken. You would think I'll kill the chicken to eat the chicken, right? Was it laying eggs? No. No. No, no joy with no, the eggs. No, this chicken huh? looked like it was on crack, or you know, it was a malnourished, oh, third world country Malaysian chicken. You know, nice. So um, I survived through that, and then um, they they drove a deuce and a half. Remember the old old tack vehicles? A deuce and a half drove down, and there was a Malaysian commando jumped out, and I had the chicken in my hand, and he was helping me onto the back of the deuce and a half. Now imagine how. Um, deprive your body is at that point, mm -hmm. right? So here I am trying to climb on the back of this deuce and I handed the Malaysian my chicken. He grabbed the chicken, broke the neck. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, here I am, you know, crying on the back of a, a deuce and half all the way back to camp <laughs> because he killed my chicken. <laughs> so that that was my, my survival training. Then you eat, you know, bugs and grubs and, you know, you just learn how to live off and navigate off that that train how long were you out there in malaysia training uh for the for the uh survival training survival training is three weeks long you were out there for three weeks the survival or? portion with the machete was 10 days long that's a long time that was a long time and you know when i say leeches are everywhere man they're everywhere yeah everywhere there's no dry spot you know you got to build a jungle hammock because you got to get off that ground. You know, you have to get off that ground. And there's monkeys everywhere, defecating yeah. their hands and throwing at you. It was just horrible, horrible, horrible experience. What was uh, what was your favorite dish you prepared? <laughs> we were um, in Malaysia or, or my career and survive for those ten days. Is there anything that you were? Yeah, we, we ate, uh, there was these banana trees all through the jungle, and you peel the bark away, you'll see these uh, maggots-looking uh, worms, right? And they're really thick. They're really thick. But if you eat it, you, you got to pop the head and, the, you know, um, you got to pop the head out. And then uh, when you eat it, you eat the grub, it, it tastes like a banana. So that was my favorite. So I had a sack of that. <laughs> you know, I would I would throw it into this like a like a dump bag. Right? Yeah, and you know a sack of grubs. You know that I would eat. But yeah, it was it was uh, it makes you respect things a little bit more. Yeah, you know when you're suffering that that much out there and you're cold and you're wet and you're hungry, you know, it makes you respect things more. Now what I want to say is, so. A few months later, I, so I graduated. A few months later, I came back for jungle warfare training. So now I know how to track. I know how to survive. And now it's raids, ambushes, hit and run tactics, patrol bases. You know, you're doing that Vietnam era jungle, you know, stuff, you know, a reconnaissance, all of that. Man, you know, it was long days, man. You know, hit and run jungle, you know, long, long distance moving through triple canopy jungle. And, um, I started feeling sorry for myself. You know how you, you're just wet, you're hungry, you're cold, and, and you're just miserable, and you, you just kind of give in to, man, this sucks. Mm -hmm. And I really, I couldn't quit, but I wanted to, yeah. but I couldn't, right? So uh, I remember this, this story, man. 
we're, we, uh, we, we found this village and, um, the command was to move past through the village because it was a friendly village, right? You still have bandits out there. You're, you're training in these jungles, but there's still bandits, terrorists, you know, so you can actually get killed out there. So we moved through this uh, village and they had snipes on Overwatch and these kids came running up to me because I was the first Westerner they saw, a soldier they seen. And man, they started singing. It was raining and they were singing and this lady came out of her termite infested hooch that was getting eaten away by termites. And she gave me some food. Some guy came up to me, you know, asked to help me carry my equipment. I'm like, no, but this is where it boils down to. You know, I looked over and they had nothing. They were living in the mud, nothing. They're grass hut was getting eaten away by termites and this little girl smiled and the parents held her and loved her and they were happy you see where this comes full circle sean is that we over complicate our lives happiness is found anywhere it doesn't have to be success and i have to have the best car the best the best house, the more money, you know, that's what we, those are the stresses we place in ourselves, you know? The reason why I felt sorry for myself because I wanted to be warm and, and not hungry anymore. But there was the answer. <clears throat> you know, it's as simple as in that, it's the mind, it's the mindset. Well, talking about full circle, did it occur to you that that was you? No, man, you know what's really weird? It's like during my uh, growth, you know, as a Green Beret, I never really thought back to my suffering as a child. Never really did. Never once. Never even tied it together. That's crazy, man. I mean, to be in the, you know, the same region in the world and, 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 and see a small child, you know, living in that, knowing that that's where you came from, maybe subconsciously, I just, you know. I will tell you this story that kind of tied into what my mother said. You know, I told you earlier, my mother said, education is freedom. So we were doing a demining mission in Laos and um, back during the Vietnam War, you know, we dropped hundreds of thousands of landmines through the rice paddies, the jungle floors, right? So that's from the Vietnam War. Hundreds of thousands of landmines. You know, kids are playing in, you know, in the 97, kids were playing in the jungles and they're they're getting their legs blown off or, you know, by these landmines that we as Americans dropped. So our mission, one of my first mission was to, to forward deploy it into Laos and do a demining mission. So we were going to train the local villagers how to, to isolate these landmines and how to demine, disarm the landmine and clear these landmines so the kids can go and play, you know, that was the mission. So being a young Green Beret at 21 years old, um, I came in uh, initially and I had a linguist come running up to the helicopter, right? So the helicopter's spinning, I'm coming off the LZ, I'm moving towards the village. I, my linguist came running up, we're talking, he's giving me a, you know, introducing himself, we're, we're walking and then this little girl from the village came running up to me. And you know, I read about it, you know, villagers, you know, give them candy. Give kids candy, build that rapport. So I, I, I was prepared. So I dug out my candy and I gave it to the little girl. And she, she said, no, she handed it back to me. And um, 
she said something in Laos and the linguist looked at me and he goes, she wants a pencil or pen. Do you have that? You know, I'm like, yeah. So I pulled my, my pen and I gave it to her. She grabbed my hand, pulled me down, kissed my cheek and ran off. And, um, I didn't think too much of it. I was more worried about the defense plan. Where's the mines? How to do the mining missions, the, the phase lines that we need to train them up and, and um, during lunch, you know, I was looking at the, the security infrastructure at the camp, and then the linguist stopped me, and he said, sir, do you realize what you did this morning? I said, what do you mean? When that little girl came running up to you, do you realize what you did? And I said, I'm sorry if I've done something wrong, but I don't know what I did. What did I do? He goes, sir, you gave that girl education. You see, we don't have pens or pencils or paper. We don't have a school here. This is what they have. Wow. And you know, it was really weird, man. It was my mother's voice came in and said, education is the key to freedom. So we had operational funds and stuff like that. And I, um, I wrote back to my command and asked for more operational funds so we can build a school and reroute the running water from the rivers to give them running water. You know, so that was one of my memories of my first, my 21-year-old days of being a Green Beret was that what was the demining mission now turned out into giving this village an education so they could have a better life for themselves. Wow. You know? And I think about that to this day. You know, when I was doing it, I didn't think about it. Didn't even think about it, to tell you the truth. I didn't. The only thing was my mother voice you know but as i got older you know you start realizing that you know in like in southern philippines the reason why they turn to terrorism because they have nothing else yeah right you just think about the impact that you've had on just by making that call you know and now that school you know it's probably still there mm -hmm. you know they definitely didn't upgrade i'm sure but uh that's awesome so during that time too, man, it was, um, so when I graduated from high school, you know, my mother was, I told you, she cried all night. She did not want me to join the army. And I was walking across the stage. So literally high school graduation, right? I got my diploma, walked across the stage. And um, at the end of the ceremony, my mom had this special ceremony. So she'd been cooking all day. And uh, I handed her the diploma. I picked up my sister and kissed her, my little sister. And I hugged my mom and I said, I have to go. And she said, why? What, what do you mean? You know? And I pointed towards the, the recruiter who was going to drive me to the bus station because I was leaving that night for basic training. See, I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted. You know, in 18... When I walked across that stage, I knew I needed to take that journey, you know, since yeah. I was 16, you know, I've been training for it. So uh, she cried and man, and I remember I, I thought about which the sacrifices she made for me, for me to have an education, for me to be free. So I looked at my mother uh, on the day of my graduation and I told my mother that I promise you that I will graduate from college. I know that means a lot to you. So imagine being a Green Beret on a team, right, that travel all through the world, right, throughout my whole career, travel all through the world. But at that time, it was Asia. 
And you know, you're going in third world countries, man. You know, there's no internet infrastructure. Yeah. There's no technology like that, you know? So back in the old days, uh, we had dial-up internet. So uh, I started college that, that way. So I would drive to local internet cafes so I can log on, you know, yeah. and, and get my assignment so I can burst out a thesis so I can take a final exam, you know? So I would drive to the internet cafe in these countries that, you know, they're, some of the countries are not so nice, Yeah, you know? So I'm driving to local internet cafes and on the weekends when the team does their thing and I would go to college. It's that drive, man. That's, you have a real powerful drive. Thank you. Um, you know, to, uh, a little off subject here, but uh, I've always wondered, you know, when you're you know, part of the mission of being a Green Beret is to, you know, take an indigenous force, lift it up, train it, and turn it into turn it into an effective warfighting, you know, asset or capability. And <clears throat> throughout uh, the last twenty years, all the other units started kind of mm -hmm. doing that too to mm -hmm. include the seal teams which we get no formal training at all yeah. on what the hell we're doing and uh when it comes to training uh indigenous forces i mean i can train somebody but i'm not i'm not going to be that's not our mission right you know we yeah. we are we're assaulters mm -hmm. and uh so when we did kind of take part in that the commandos or the jundies or whoever we're getting, they were just handed to us, you mm -hmm. know, whether, whether they have any skill, whether they have a lot of skill, so it was always different. And that moved into even uh, when I moved into the agency. But one thing that I never got to see is from the ground up, actually, you know, day one in country, in a village, third world, you don't speak the language. What in the hell are you guys how do you do it? What are you looking for? How do you identify somebody that you think would be an effective commando uh, to, that you're going to work side by side with? Yeah. So a lot of times when we go into country, they're usually vetted, you know, uh, depending on the mission, the operation, it can be vetted at the CIA level, you know, depending on the targeting uh, that we're going to use with this fit force. So um, day one, ground zero. It's, it starts off with the human being, right? The individual. So we put them through the tests, like uh, assessment selection, you know? We put them through the hardships. And through the hardship, if, if you have the, the commandos that are able to rise past all the misery, the suffering, then they actually become who I work with. Okay. Because now you can't teach a guy leadership. Yeah. Right? I guess you could teach him leadership, but you can't teach him the non-quitting attitude, the mindset, strong mind, right? Either you got it or you don't. So once I assess that, hey, he has this, you know, code that he lives by, then I can mature that code, you know? Uh, obviously, you know, it's it's heavy intelligence for a Green Beret. You know, Green Berets are uh, very intelligent driven, intelligence driven. That means if I go into country X, I study that country. I study history. I study infrastructure. I study the people, the culture, the religion. I study the demographics. I study the terrain. I study the environment, the weather. I study everything. So I know when I go in there, how can I, you know, is a rainy season, 
you know, that changes tactics, mm -hmm. you know, and it changes your, your night vision capabilities if you're running night vision. So it changes a lot of that. So we study, study, study. And then when we get in, we link up with that indigenous force. I already have a general intelligence of this group, right? And then, then you realize, you know, you break it down into the tribes, right? Certain tribes, because they can put certain different regions of tribes into this mosh posh group of rebels and they're fighting amongst each other because they've been at war for i don't know hundreds of years you mm -hmm. know now you gotta separate that you know and work as a cohesive unit and they're probably educated at a third third grade education note some some of them have discipline some of them have no discipline some countries i go to they have zero discipline some of them have great discipline you know so it's about Understanding the human being, understanding their history, their motives, the enemy on the, on the ground, you know, and then training that fit force to combat whatever tactic that the enemy is deploying based off of intelligence, terrain, environment, whatever. How are they attacking that locals? What are they using? You know, and we talked about the effectiveness of unconventional warfare. You know, unconventional warfare is... That's the most effective means of warfare. You agree? Oh, Being yeah. a man of war? Absolutely. Yeah, right? We we got our independence. We became Americans because unconventional warfare, you know? Sanju, Art of War, talks about unconventional, united all of China. So it's a very effective means. And and this unconventional warfare is, has been going on all around the world. In fact, the Navy SEALs and the Green Berets were developed in Vietnam by John F. Kennedy to counter guerrilla tactics that's our birth that's our existence yep. you know and to understand that at, at that level you know obviously the more i matured as a green beret the more operational environments i went through so the jungle the desert you know urban to africa villages you know what i mean so all that has it changed because the terrain's changed, the people has changed, the culture's changed, the environment's changed, you know? So you have to quickly understand that. And these rebels can turn on you anytime. Yeah. we. I mean, we saw that multiple times in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. So what happens if you have a six-man team training guerrilla tactics in a jungle and then you have your command group at, at, you know, when I say the command group is the captain, the team sergeant, and the warrant, right? And they're maybe at the G base. What happened if something happened at the G base where they have to ENR because this rebel group is turning on you? Yeah. So how are you going to link up your friendly forces that are training out in the jungle with the command force and ENR out of the country? All that's planned. No cons plan. If the, if the, uh, FID force turns against you, if the government turns against you, how are you going to get out of the country? Yeah. You know, when when, when we, they throw us in these countries, sometimes you have an exit plan with a plane coming in and you load mm -hmm. up, and sometimes you don't. You know, you got to figure it out on the ground. Can I, this LZ is about this wide, this is a survey, can I get a helicopter in to evac me out or do I need to put a jungle penetrator in it? Cause I don't have that, you know, so it, it gets really complex and, but every phase of the operation is carefully planned, you know, with contingencies. <clears throat> you were talking about, you know, different countries and different units that you've worked with have more discipline. Is there any 
any nation in particular that you've stood a force up that stands out as as, as having more drive, more discipline, better performance than anyone else? Who is your favorite to work with? You know, the Korean 7 is pretty badass. Really? Yeah, they were they were pretty cool. You know, um, their effectiveness, their speed. Um, they were repel masters. They can repel into windows. They run down walls. So they're, you know, they're truly like the martial arts commandos. You know, they, they run around jungle tiger stripe fatigues in snow, barefooted, no shirt on. Tiger Damn. stripe camouflage on their face. You know what I mean? Like, how badass yeah. is that? You know, so... Uh, I really enjoy working with those guys. I thought they were they're really cool. Um, obviously, the British two two SAS they're amazing. Um, I mean, we work with so many so many commando forces. You know. Yeah. Nutrient survival, for when you're a survival expert and you don't catch a damn thing. But I, I truly feel like we, we have one of the best. You know, SEALs, Green Beret. I, I truly feel like our country is one of the best countries because we have intelligent warriors, very smart warriors. Yeah. You know, and they're not just, like, you know, obviously we have our our meathead warriors, right? But overall, I mean, our selection process to weave out, you know, and, and look for the, the intelligent soldier and then make him into an athlete. You know, so, yeah, man, I mean, I there are some forces that I don't want to work with anymore, but overall, like 90, I would say about 90% of the forces that I work with, I'll fight alongside him. And I yeah. have. What is the, what do you think the fastest you could stand up from, 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 from day one to you're comfortable enough to, to take him on an op with you? What, what do you think the fastest? You know, it really depends on the op, but like in the Philippines, um, it took us six months. Six months? For a tier one capability. When I say that is this, the, the SIF guys, which is the Green Berets that, focus on direct action fit operations. Um, so in the Philippines, right? So we had to stand up this national level uh, counter-terrorist capability. So the, the normal team guys, the Green Berets, uh, come in, they'll teach them unconventional warfare, right? So the basic land navigation, physical training, you know, uh, raids, ambushes. And then from there, they take us, they, they hand off the packet to us which then we take them into urban phase, which is, you know, uh, FID, direct action, counter-terrorists, hostage rescue. Uh, so it took us a good six months to get them to a, a good baseline, you know? No, I mean, it just really depends, man. You know, like um, like Libya, 
you know, these these were rebels from uh, the Gaddafi, you know, countering the Gaddafi regime. So they had war experience. Mm -hmm. They're just really undisciplined. So we had to teach them discipline and leadership. You know what I mean? So it's it goes more on just pulling the trigger. You have to teach people how to be a cohesive unit. And when they're coming from different tribes and they hate each other, how can you, how can you have them work together? That's got to be tough. Until when they start dying, right? If you hit Atari and they start dying and they're dragging their dead buddy out of the house, then they realize we all bleed the same. Yeah. And just because you're in different tribes doesn't mean anything. You need to work together if you're willing to survive. So, you know, it's just really um, cultural awareness. Yeah. You know, all, all of that, all of it, it plays. Well, let's go back to Malaysia because uh, at dinner last night, you kind of opened up about some of your extracurricular activities. <laughs> Uh, that you were doing over there, yes, and uh, and I found that which actually wound up leading you into a, a an entirely new unit and and uh, new career path. So I'd like to dig into that. I think that is uh, extremely interesting, and I know the audience would love to hear that. Oh, okay. So let me paint you the picture of my status on the team. I was an E5 on a Special Forces A team, the youngest. I was 21 years old. Everybody else is senior to me. They're new, they're in their 30s, right, with combat experience, world experience, and I'm this new guy. So I remember my first day showing up the team room. I show up in my starch uniform, my spit shine boots. I was a soldier. And I came in, they kicked my boots to scratch it up. Um, they call me all sorts of names, right? Yeah. And then um, they told me that they're not going to give me the combo to the team room because they don't trust Charlie. And at the time, I'm like, I'm not a Charlie, I'm a Bravo. <laughs> and, they were, <laughs> and they were like, no, Charlie. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, that was a racist thing. So um, my thing was I take out the garbage and uh, I had to clean the floors every day. I had to police up after the team. I didn't even have a job. I didn't have a desk. So... Um, Man, I was really good at cleaning those floors and taking out the garbage. I buffed the floors during the weekends. I would come in and glass floor. Yeah. And my team sergeant was giving me all these assignments, and he was like, he don't get it. Like, you know, we're harassing him, but he's taking it to the next level, right? And I would, I was just, um, I was just very humble. You know, I was grateful to be there. But I was a student of the martial arts. All right, since I was eight, I've been training in martial arts, the way, the path, you know. Um, Okinawa was a huge experience because, man, that was the birthplace of Okinawan karate, Japanese jiu-jitsu, you know, very spiritual, very. So I, um, I participated in training uh, in submission wrestling and, and I got into uh, Muay Thai when I deployed to Muay Thai, uh, I mean, to Thailand. I went to Jumpmaster in Takli, Thailand, which is an Air Force base in, uh, in Thailand. And on the weekends, my buddies would go to Bangkok and, you know, they'll hang out. And I went to a Muay Thai camp, right? <laughs> and I would train with the, uh, the local fighters. And literally, uh, there was a ring. There was the mat that I slept on, and there was bowls of rice that we would eat. You know, like you're sleeping on a dirt floor next to a ring. 
you know, I had a mosquito net around me and it was miserable, right? Yeah. And I would kick this um, this pole with a rope wrapped around, you know. So I got into really heavy fighting, and UFC was starting to uh, get more popular at that time. You remember when UFC first came out? Yeah. They had the uh, the divides between all of the styles, right? You could truly say that's a karate guy, that's a judo guy, that's a jujitsu, right? You could see it. Mm-hmm. Now it's just a mixture, right? But back then. Um, I thought it was really fascinating that jujitsu was dominating that fight world and that Muay Thai was doing really well in the striking world, you know? So, man, you know, I started fighting, right? So um, it started off at tough man contests on the weekends. Um, There was a tough man contest at a a Marine base called Camp Foster. And, um, you can go there, you can sign in your name, you fight a bunch of Marines. <laughs> so I did. I did, and I did very well, you know. So then um, there was this fight promoter named Santo. He was a Japanese guy, and he took underneath me. Obviously, he wanted to make money out of me, and he said, would you want to fight, you know, at Japanese dojos, at matches? He was talking about the underground matches. So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right? So I went there and uh, I fought in parking lots. I fought in dojos. Uh, and then uh, I I became really good. So I got invited to this match called the Budokan. The Budokan match is kind of like a, a big deal in Okinawa, Japan. It's like a no-holds-bar, like a UFC. Um, but it's not as as popular as UFC. It's I don't know if you heard of Pride. Oh, yeah, I've heard of Pride. Okay, so Pride fighting was developed in mainland Japan, but uh, uh, the Budokan came down to Okinawa, and I was selected as the main fight. The main fight? I was selected as the main fight. So then I started training up for it, right? And then they um, they hand me down this policy letter from, uh, from Yusasak, from a two-star general that because UFC started becoming popular and the team guys were getting hurt trying to fight in these no hold bars matches. So there was a letter, a policy letter saying that team guys would not participate in no hold bar matches. And I was on the final uh, card, right, to fight. So I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, right? So I gave it to you. I remember uh, talking to my team sergeant and my captain. I was like, hey, I'm training for this fight. I really want to fight this. And my captain said, absolutely not. This is a policy for a two-star general. You will not fight. But I'm going to go to the match down in the Budokan, and you happen to be there, and I don't know. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, right, I can fight. So I started training up. I started... Um, I was that guy who runs with a stone underneath the beach, right? I was, you know, depriving my body of oxygen. I was really getting into uh, fighting shape. And then our pagers went off. Uh, I was part of a, a counter-terrorist team. And our pagers went off. And it was a training op, so we got pushed out into Malaysia. Uh, we rotted our bodies in a hangar for a month because uh, the snipers employed. It was a hostage rescue situation. They were building up this scenario. It was just training op. But I was uh, in this Malaysian hangar, and I had a fight due in less than a month, right? Yeah. So my body's rotting away, and um, man, I got sick. 
along with, you know, the whole troop got sick. And we did our our training out there and redeployed. And I had four days <laughs> right before I fought. And I had, oh, man, I had diarrhea. I had, you know, just just really bad, you know. And I was really in a bad way because when I did the striking, dude, I was out of breath, like within the first 30 seconds because my body was just that weak coming out of the jungles. And I had a fight in four days. Yeah. And um, my medic told me, drop out. He goes, don't do it, dude. Drop out. They're seeing a guy from mainland Japan to fight you. So the fight car was this pan-crazed champion coming from mainland Japan to whoop my ass because I was doing good in these uh little small fights. I was an up-and-comer. And, comer. and uh, he came in from uh, mainland Japan. He's a big Japanese fighter. You know, I was fighting at a weight of 190, and he was 210, you know, in that Budokan open match. So I remember the fight night, man. Um, my team shows up, right? So I poke my head out from the the back dressing room when I'm doing my strikes. My team is there, the command is there. I'm like, oh, so I poke my head back in. I'm like, oh God, I gotta win this fight. But I'm really sick, you know? I'm throwing up in the uh, bathroom, literally right before the fight. And then Santo comes in, he goes, you can't fight like this. And then that, walk or die speech came in yeah. through my uncle. Do you want to be a commando today? Yeah. And I said, yes, I want to be a commando. So I, <laughs> so I put on my fighting clothes and I, I walk out. Right. I wasn't a champ. So he, he walked out last. So I came on the ring, you know, the music's playing. I'm all amped up. This is my first like semi-professional fight. Right. And then this Japanese guy comes in and he was like one of the biggest Japanese dudes I ever seen. Long story short, he whipped my ass, like bad, bad. Um, but uh, yeah, man, I fought in those matches. And um, so fast forward it, I was in Thailand and um, <laughs> I was suiting up for a Muay Thai fight, right? So these Thai fighters, man, they can kick. They're like lightning fast, you know? And I, I went into the ring and um, well, I was in the dressing room. I was prepping to go to the ring, and one of my friends come back. He goes, hey, man, hey, there's a guy here. I don't want to say his name because he still does classified stuff, but uh, he was the command sergeant major of a tier one unit. that He was going to go back and take that command, and uh, he wanted uh, – just they wanted to let me know that he's there. <laughs> so I'm freaking out. I'm like, what's that mean? Yeah. <laughs> Should I be fighting? And they're like, hey, dude, I don't know. You do what you do. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I'll go fight, right? So I went down there, and um, the fight didn't last long. The Muay Thai fighters, they can kick, but they can't they can't take a punch, right? So um, that that cross, man, you know, he got hit. I took the kick, and I came in, and I exploded with my hands. And he went down, and I won the fight, and I went back in that dressing room. And... My medic friend comes in. He goes, did you know that he was here, that guy? And I'm like, yeah, I heard. And then my buddy came, and he dropped a business card. And he said, hey, just letting you know, he uh, he saw the fight, and he wants you to call him. I was like, for what? You know, I thought I was in trouble. He goes, you know where he's going. He wants to talk to you about something. I don't know. So I called him, right? And um, 
he 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 said it straight. He goes, I want to hire you on in in CAG as the combatus. You're going to work in selection and training. That's insane, dude. Right. So, uh, you know, at that time, um, I was gearing up to go to the Philippines. So I, I was doing that off in Thailand. I was closed off and went back to Okinawa, Japan. I compensated on it. You know, I thought about what his offer was. You know, and I knew, like, the timeline when he was going to go back and take the unit. And um, I, I deployed with my team into the Philippines. Um, let me tell you something about a Tier 1 unit, man. They can do whatever they want. There was a dirt trail road in Zamboanga. And um, I had to go through the direct support uh, selection process, which was road mars, physical training, uh, phys PT, psychological evaluation, academics, you know. So you have to pass all that and then you get accepted into that role. So it's a three-day process, an interview and, and uh, physical fitness. So I had to fly to North Carolina to do that. I'm in Zambawanga, Philippines right now. They, they had a dirt trail road where I had to put these little lights up and they landed this plane and they flew me to North Carolina to, uh, to go through, you know, I was CAG's uh, direct support, you know, selection. And um, I made it, got hired on as a, as a combatist guy. And what was that entitled? I was working in selection and training and I was training under uh, these guys called Team Rock, who were qualified under Hoist Gracie. I was training with Hoist Gracie. I would travel around America and train with all these prize fighters. I would bring that knowledge back. I would fight all day long and work out all day long. What a life, right? Mm. Then there was a sergeant major from a C Squadron, and he came in, and um, he was a big jiu-jitsu guy, and he asked me um, to go with him on a combat op. So they were, uh, the squadron was fixing to rotate in for their rotation of Iraq and we we're hunting down, you know, Sarkawi at that time. So, you know, a combatant guy, right? So um, I got together my, my, my team gear. I got the intel brief from the intel guys, got attached to uh, C squadron, came in and, you know, I was, I did a lot of stuff that they needed me to do. Like, you know, um, I was a gunner. On, uh, I was a attack vehicle driver, so I infilled the teams in, and then eventually, I was containment for the assault. You know, so near term containment. But you know, during that time frame, man, I saw some capabilities in that unit. I'll bet you did. And uh, for for those listening that don't know who Zarkawi is, I believe he was the number two most wanted uh, high value target. In uh, in the war, yeah, yeah the, he got killed. Uh, was that two thousand six? Yeah, yeah. So you know, obviously he was. The and you were after him. Well, I was one of the the unit was after him. Yeah, and I worked within that organization. I wouldn't say that I was, you know, besides the intel gathering and, and everything else that everybody was trying. To, it was a unit effort. I didn't mean. I meant yeah. Yes, absolutely. You were part of the effort. Yes. So during that time, you know, we were hitting, gosh, man, they were, that was the height of the war. You know, think about Iraq back in that, that yeah. era. So it was the height of the war, um, you know, gunfights happen on a daily, every day, you know. So I saw some uh, special um, capabilities within that organization that set it apart from anything else. You know, anything else is their intelligence gathering capabilities working with the CIA, you know, 
And I gave him that, that lethality, like that piece where you can find fix and, and, and strategically hit a target, man, mm -hmm. that's it, that's it, right? So, you know, during that time, uh, we were doing a lot of the infrastructure exploitation. I don't want to get into it too much, but that's how we would find somebody, you know? And the, the technology was used against the enemy and how we would find, fix, and locate and kill them. Uh, and so I started seeing the birth of that, working with NSA, you know, starting to see uh, the special reconnaissance piece rise up. And I saw the capability. I wasn't part of it, but I saw it. You know, so um, being gunfights every day, you know, I, I came back, uh, I was put in for a Valor Award and I was really happy, you know, by the unit. And uh, I went to back to selection and training and the, the, the Sergeant Major of Selection and Training said, hey, you, you got put in for a Valor Award. Good job. You know, you did great. Heard great things about you, but you're fired. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what? What's that mean? They're like, look, look, not, nothing personal. You did a great job, but you're fired from the the combatants program because he goes, son, you're taking up a sergeant major position in selection and training. We just gotta, you know, have that career progression for the operators to take that position so they can get promoted. And you're E7, right? And I'm like, okay, God. And he goes, look, I, you know, we have a lot of other positions that I think you're going to be good at, like dog handlers or breachers were brought up. Um, go down to ops and, you know, find that assignment, apply for that assignment. And then, you know, but you're fired from here yeah, because you're taking up a sergeant major position. You know, I'll tell you, man, I didn't know what to do. Right. I'm like, okay. So I walked down to ops and I was walking down and there's a very classified wing within that, that organization. I don't want to get into it, but there's, there was a very classified area and it, it had reconnaissance on there, right? Special reconnaissance. So I'm like, those are the guys that I saw that special capabilities from when I was a combatant guy, right? And uh, I really liked that. So I knocked on their door. I bang it on their door, and then this camera turns on. It's, right? oh. I was looking at them, and they're like, who, who are you? Right? The, the, the door started speaking, who are you? Like, oh, my name is Tulam, and I, I want to <laughs> come inside and talk to uh, the troop commander. You know, And they're like, we don't know you. What's your business here? I'm like, I, want, I need to talk to him because I want to apply for you know, a possible job. You know, I'm talking to this door, right? And uh, the door unlatches, and I came in. I saw the uh, the troop sergeant major. I sat down. He said, who are you? You know, when I was out in first special forces group, I did a lot of the low-vis stuff. I was part of uh, a project called uh, Trojan, uh, Trojan Lancer, which they recruit from native warriors, the guys that can blend in into the indigenous areas. Mm -hmm. And we would do black dax. You know, I don't want to get into the black decks, but we we would do that stuff working with uh, the handlers up in the embassy, you know, the low-vis handlers. So, you know, I, I told them about my background. I did a little bit of that, and, you know, I tried out for their uh, their interview process. I got hired on, and I started learning. And, man, I tell you, it was a, it, you're talking about, Sean, you're talking about a fish out of water, right? Because up until then, I kicked indoors. I was a commando. I tracked down human beings in the jungle. So mine was very direct action commando stuff, mm -hmm. right? And the first day of reconnaissance training was this is how a cell phone works, and this is how the towers work, and this is how 
a Iranian phone works, and this is how a global star satellite, and this is where it orbits around the world, and this is where the direction you need to point towards if you need to latch onto this satellite and this satellite. So they're really teaching me covert means of communication, you really think about it. Yeah. I just didn't see it at the time. Yeah. I'm like, it was really long hours, man. It was, you know, long training, long training. I, did, I didn't think I was going to make it through some of the training because it's really technical, very technical. So then I, I started deploying, um, started doing the special reconnaissance piece, and they stood up a, a, another capability within the unit to work with the CIA. And I was part of the technical reconnaissance piece for that. And uh, I had to go through eight months of training with the CIA. Now, it's not all CIA. All, certain certain portions of it were, especially the tradecraft, the streetcraft portion. And the reason why we had to cross-train with them is because we four deployed later on into these countries where we had to work underneath the chief of station. You know, it was it was really funny because you and I, after talking last night, we were in the same country. On the same project. On the same, hunting down the same person. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it never ceases to amaze me on how small the special operations community actually is. And, you know, it won't be the first time that's happened. It's, it won't be the last time that's happened, but yeah, when you, you know, unfortunately can't really go into any details, but when you started, when we started kind of shooting the shit and I was like, wait a, hold on, what year was that? And, uh, and you heard about what we did there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we were in both locations too, on the North and the South and, and, uh, yeah, that's, I had no idea that I was, uh, you know, working with two lamps. <laughs> Nutrient Survival, Spec Ops Grade Nutrition. Sean, you know, what's funny is I was going to college at that time, too. Like, you know, we had our CIA safe houses out in town, and, you know, when, when the ops were low, I would log on and do my college. So it was a continuous, yeah. continuous process, you know. But um, getting back to when I was fired, you know, uh, and then I got accepted onto that, but, you know, what, you know, sometimes what we think is a curse is a blessing, right? Mm -hmm. Me, it, there's no way I would have saw that capability unless I was invited to go to that combat rotation. And there was no way that I could have gone there unless I was fired from selection and training. I wouldn't say I was fired. I just took a sergeant major position, you know. But um, I did eight years there. You know, I travel all around the world. How did you like uh, that kind of that change of pace when you went into 
kind of an advanced surveillance and and all of that stuff. We did I we did a course similar to that, not at that level. Uh, when I was in when I was on the SEAL teams, and uh, at that time we were I was jumping into a team that was going to go to Bosnia. Uh, long story short, we were running down uh, war criminals, mm -hmm. you know, from back in the day, and then. Um, and then I wound up going to Afghanistan and said, but we did a course with the MI6 that the M we had contracted out to the MI6 to come to Virginia beach and put us through that course. And we didn't fire one shot. We didn't blow anything up. We didn't jump out of any planes. We didn't do any of that shit. Uh, totally new change of pace. And instead what we were doing is running around on the 20th floor of the Bank of American building in Richmond, Virginia, and nobody knows who the hell we are, what we're doing, and it was all about to blend in. And the, uh, the area of operation started in, you know, Virginia Beach in a, in, an, in a mall. And then it was downtown Norfolk. And then it was, you know, the whole eastern seaboard in Virginia. And it just kept... It's some of the coolest training I've ever done uh, to date, and I, and and definitely some of the most practical, and uh, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. You know, even though I wasn't blowing shit up all the time mm -hmm. and shooting things, and did how was your experience with that? Man, change? you know, like with the certain reports, you know, that we had to write after surveillance. Um, the casing reports, right? It was just, man, brutal. Because, um, you know, you had to write like six pages of, of this describing in detail. You know, you had to be able to map out certain areas, you know? So it was very, very outside my realm. Very, I mean, you're flying on non-commercial aircrafts, you know, civilian aircrafts, trying to pinpoint a, we call it a dumb beacon, which is pulses, you know? How do you find just a, a dumb beacon, you know, something that just pulses a frequency. You know, how can you triangulate it down to a pinpoint location where I could put the kill capability there? You know what I mean? So flying in commercial aircrafts, hell, so it was totally out of my realm. You know, I would tell you it took me a good year to kind of really like get over that hump because, dude, I was just treading water. Yeah. You know what I mean? I felt like I was totally out of my realm. You know, totally out of my realm. But once I got that training, right, and I graduated from that training, I got some real world ops behind me. It was really cool. Be because people think like a commando, right? Tell me what's more dangerous. A SEAL team coming in and hitting a pinpoint target where you know what the bad guys are in that house. You know the exact location, right? And you're coming in with a whole SEAL team. Or a singleton driving around Country X doing reconnaissance where you shouldn't be doing that. If you get caught, you don't know if your head's going to get lobbed off. You're going to be on the news. You have no X-field plan. Your, your weaponry is only a pistol, mm -hmm. if even that, if you can diplomatic pouch that in, you know? For me, well, that's, I would say that's more dangerous. Uh, or at least has the potential to be. But for me, in that environment, 
when it's when it's only you. I mean, that's like the best and the worst feeling mm-hmm. in the world. And uh, and then and then to fast forward, and we were talking about this last night too. When you fast forward ten years, and you're like, holy shit. I was one guy, you know, and I'm a white guy, you know, and, and uh, one guy running around, you know, Yemen by myself or with one other dude and then, you know, d- doing these sort of things. And then you fast forward and it's like, holy shit, like that really is some Jason Morn shit, you know. You know, it's, what's really unique is, you know, you asked me last night, you're like, when you're doing it, did you know, like, this is some dangerous shit you're doing? And I told you, like, I never knew. <laughs> I knew it was dangerous, obviously, right? You, you you know, you go to the funerals of your friends. You know how real this war is, you know? But when I was doing it, I wasn't nervous. It was a thing, you know? It was a thing. And I knew surveillance was on me. I knew they were on me. Yeah. But you have to go about your daily routine, even though you're being followed, right? And they're trying to draw intelligence from you. You, you know. Yeah. You know, your training kicks in. But... What's really unique is when you're doing it, it was, I'm not saying I'm brave. I'm, you know, it, it was just a thing. It was just work. It doesn't feel the same because the bullets aren't flying. That's right. The explosions That's right. aren't happening. You don't have A-10s over top, Apaches, you know, you don't have any of that. It's, no. it's, you, that means you're doing it right because none of that is happening. And in the middle of it, it can almost it can get to the point where it seems boring, mm-hmm. but you make one wrong move, you know. And, and you know what boring. I want to <laughs> so. say, too, is like, you know, in war, we have layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of support, right? The pred, the imagery, the intelligence packet. You know, you have your half, your gaff. You have all these packets, man. Those are war assets. You go into, like you said, Yemen. It's not a, a declared war zone. Yeah. So you're not going to have everything from the war. You're not going to have pred fees. You're not going to have certain SIGINT platforms. You're not going to have any of that because they can't even fly into the location. You can't get resupplies in because it's not a part of the, the country agreement. Yeah. So you can't get weapons in, you know? So when I think about that, man, when, when people think like, oh, you know, spec ops is about door kicking and all that, that's, yeah, we do that, but... There's a lot of guys like you that are out there as singletons that's living in it. You're living in it. I mean, how many stories have we heard about guys like us get their heads lopped off? Yeah. They end up on the news. They get kidnapped. They go up missing. You know, it happens. So it gets really real when you think about it. And when I think back to now, Sometimes I get anxieties, right? I think back, I'm like, oh my God, I did that. Like, that's really crazy. You know, and now it's hitting me more than when I was actually doing it. Yeah. The same, same here. You know, but it really rounds, it really, it it turns you into an extremely well-rounded and, 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 and talk about learning how to adapt. Yeah. That, you have no choice. You know, so. But, you know, during that, that you know, special missions unit assignment, I mean, I cross-trained with 2-2-SAS. So I was able to get their, um, their tactics when they're fighting, you know, uh, uh, Ireland. 
You know what I mean? They're finding the terrorists out there. I was able to cross-train with the Israelis. I got to cross-train with all these high-level units in the art of surveillance and reconnaissance. And intelligence, you know, the Israelis, man, they're one of the leading companies in their intelligence gathering capabilities. They're, yeah. You know what I mean? They have to be based off their geographic location. I never got to work with them. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're amazing. Their technology and the way to do stuff, their intelligence gathering is amazing. So what I'm saying is, you know, that that assignment allowed me to cross-train all these different entities. And even within our country, you know, the NSA and, you know, the CIA. And I got to work with the um, the marshals, you know, because the marshals are great at tracking human beings down. You know, we just had to change it to how we do that overseas. You know, and, you know, um, working in like countries like Yemen uh, is, is a non-permissive environment, semi-non-permissive environment. So, you you know, you being a, a white guy, you're not going to get killed driving down the street, but you're going to get looked at. Oh, yeah. And if you go into the wrong part of town, you're going to get killed. Yeah. Right? And if you're looking for bad guys in that part of town, then that country can either snag you up because... Well, you shouldn't be doing that, or, or um, is a terrorist that snags you up. In some of these fake checkpoints that we have to go through, where there there could be a terrorist trap, or it can be the government, you know, trying to see what you're doing. So what I'm saying, it was very complex in that arena, and they're tracking your your cell phones and everything else. So they they triangulate where you're at. So you have to understand that level. There's so much to think about when you're operating in that kind of an environment and in that capacity. Because it's 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 the bad guys that we're tracking, but not only that, it's also all the other spy games that are happening over there with the Chinese, the Russians, mm -hmm. the Iranians, the Israelis, you know, and 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 running into them, you know, and they know who you are, you know who they are, and it's it just gets real weird. Yeah, and uh, and uh, yeah. You know, being a 210-pound Asian guy walking around in some of these mid-eastern countries, I mean, you stand out, man. Yeah. You know, even though I'm Asian, I look like a Westerner. Yeah. You know, I stand out. I am a prime target for kidnapping. Prime. Yeah. You know, and some of the ops that we go out, and man, you're a singleton, one up in a car. You're sitting out in, you know, a bumper position somewhere, you know, that somebody can roll up on you and, and take you out. You know, they know where your safe house is at, you know? Yeah. And uh, and like you said, it's not just the bad guys. It's not just the terrorists. It's the, the host nation. They want to know what you're doing in their country. And then it's the Chinese. They want to know what you're doing in their country or in, in that area, right? And then, you know, you got all these different embassies, right? And you got to work. You got to work in that silent mode throughout yeah. all of them. And you got to find, fix, and locate whoever you're, you're there to find, you know, it takes a lot of work. And, but I found out like, you know, we can't do that physical re reconnaissance, right? It's physical surveillance. That's, you can't do it because I'm a 210 pound Asian guy. I don't blend in. Yeah. So that's where, you know, the, the agency training came in, the infrastructure, you know, I can track a human being without even being in country. Yeah. Right. So, and that's what I learned from that, that journey.
you know what I mean? Um, it was so funny because like you said, it started off as combatives, right? And then uh, it went to me getting fired in that position, but um, it was a blessing because it made me, like you said, well-rounded. So when I came out of um, working in that organization for roughly eight years, um, Libya fell during that time. When I say Libya, number the attacks on Libya, the annex, the CIA headquarters, you know, the Americans were drug out in the street, killed, you know. And um, we didn't respond it right away. You remember that incident? I remember yeah. that. We didn't respond it right away. And so that was the need for uh, a special operations Africa command. Right. They needed a strike capability within Africa in case something like that happens. So, um, you know, I, I requested from JSOC to to go there and take that, apply for that assignment. You know, it was the uh, the SIF teams, you know, the Commander Extremist Forces or CRIF, Crisis Responses Forces, what they changed it to. And it was the continent of Africa. So we became the action arm of Africa. You know, and the, and the thing about what people tell me is like, what makes Green Berets you so unique, right? It's, yeah, we got that FID capability and force multiplying, but we're DARE. That means that I have a capability to go in and train indigenous force. My presence there, because the country team allows it, but I can quickly react to a hostage situation. I can go border crossings if I need to recover human being, you know what I mean? So being in that continent, I knew I needed to be in that continent because that's where all the heavy fighting was. And the unit was kind of pushing me that way anyways. But I wanted more of, instead of doing the surveillance piece now, I wanted to go back to direct action. So that's what made me switched over again. So doing the low vis piece, I mean, gosh, man, I did it for so long. And then I'm like, okay, I want to go back to kicking in the door again. Mm -hmm. Right, I want that direct action piece again. So I, I left um, the unit and um, I got offered a troop sergeant major position in that unit to stay. Um, during that time, I picked up E8 as uh, in the special forces, and we had to go back to special forces uh, group and do our team sergeant time, and then that's when I'll go back to to the unit and take my troop sergeant major time. So that was the agreement. Um, I decided that um, I fell in love with Colorado. It's beautiful out there. Yeah. You should come visit me out there. I will. It's so beautiful. And uh, I found somewhat of my peace when, when I was off work, but uh, I deployed into Africa. Uh, I did the Libya piece. Um, that was long. You know, we were training a FID force. We are finding a... Uh, a, a strike capability within that unit. It was a very hard assignment because a lot of these guys were, um, some of them were crooked. You know, they were vetted by the CIA, but some of them were, were, were bad guys, you know. Um, our area operation didn't allow us, you know, the freedom of movement of a war zone, right? We couldn't just strike, yeah. right? We had, it was more intelligence gathering, no lie, 100% they're here. And then we do a truly strategic strike because if you ruin rapport of that country, then you get kicked out of the country and you lose your footing within that continent. 
right? Yeah. So that's what people don't understand. You strike the wrong target, you're going to get kicked out it's of the country and you lost your mission. So it was really heavy, heavy, heavy intelligence in standing up a fighting force. So, you know, I was part of a rotation. We stood up the fighting force. We started doing some uh, some confidence um, targets. And um, my rotation was over, and then I got pulled out, and I got sent into South Africa where I protected uh, our former president, um, Obama, you know, Barack Obama. And he was there to attend uh, Mandela's funeral. So that was one of my last missions, you know, with, with that. Uh, organization, but this is where it, it came to head with me. You know, roughly around that time, I was at 14 and a half years of war and combat. Seven years of that was heavy, heavy war and, and combat and conflict areas within a tier one organization, you know, so you're thrown out there. So after seven years of that, and then before that was the first group, you know what I mean? So I was, yeah. it was compounding on me. And I didn't see it, you know. Um, you know, you hear about uh, post-traumatic stress. You hear about PTSD. You hear about all of it. It can't happen to me. Yeah, I'm breaded to do this, but it was. And um, I started getting numb to the world. I started uh, losing focus at work. Just didn't care. And that's dangerous in a in a dangerous man game, right? That's a dangerous mindset when you don't care in that world. So I, I just realized that, um, you know, I just need to to move on with my life. And um, how long do you think you were just kind of going through the motions before before it finally clicked? It's time to hang it up. Two years. Two years. Did it gradually get worse? Yeah. Did you start getting complacent? Yes. Yeah. Didn't care, get complacent, you know, and I'm, hey man, everybody makes their mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I just, I'm just letting you know that it was a hard time in my life and, um, I had to reflect back on my life and, and I realized that maybe I'm just not made for this anymore. You know, even though I was, I had all this experience, I was top of my game. I was just, I wasn't feeling anymore. You know, it, it bothers me um, seeing women and children get killed, you know, and you're in that environment and it bothers me. It bothered me that I couldn't affect certain areas and people and free those people. So it bothered me. So at that time, I had a lot of guilt. I had a lot of um, pain. So I started hiding that pain, right? Um, I was hurt. I've been shot. I've been blown up, you know, so... Uh, they give us uh, obviously painkillers, you know, to keep you. You're 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 the NFL team, right? So they're yeah. going to give you whatever you need to stay on the battlefield. And um, I self medicated myself a lot during that time to hide that pain. What were you self medicating with? Opiates. Opiates. Oxy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you know as well as I do, that's a normal that's a normal thing on the team, like a normal issue. Yeah. Team guys hide their uh, their pain through that yeah. you know so I, I started um just losing my way and um i was out in africa one day and um i was drinking some chai tea 
and we're ready to uh, to go out and do our patrols and uh, the counter poaching wars in Africa. And um, the sun was coming up. You ever found your peace, man? You ever like had a moment where you're like, "Wow, that's beautiful." Yes. And you're there in that present moment. Well, that was that present moment. I was there in Africa, right? So at that time, I was at uh, 19 years in the military. You know, majority of it was special operations. So I was really messed up, you know. And I found my peace there. And I, I said to my, I wrote, I carry a notebook everywhere I go. Like a samurai, I write stuff down. And um, I wrote the word peace. Because that was my new journey. You know, so born in war, fought racism, fought, you know, the oppressed and freed and enslaved. And now it's, you know, I'm really messed up and I needed to find my my peace in life. Myself again. You've got to do you. Yeah. You know, they, Lao Zhu was a, uh, the founder of Taoism. And he said, the journey of a thousand miles began with a single step. And I read that when I was uh, 12 years old, you know, that saying. And I wrote down the piece and I, I started my first steps towards peace. And that means to, um, so I got off the teams, I put in my retirement uh, packet, and I was off on my new journey to find myself again. Well, that's pretty huge of you, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of guys, it's just, it's just, you know, one more deployment, one more, one more, one more. And, uh, you know, just like a drug, it's just never going to be enough. You're just going to have to cut it eventually, mm. you know. I mean, we're all addicts. If you're on a team, you're an addict. You're addicted to adrenaline. Yeah. You're addicted to that fast-paced life. You're addicted to it. That's yeah. why we stay in so long. You just don't know when to call it. Well, at that moment, you know, peace was more important than anything in my life. Well... I think we're getting ready to start uh, transition, so let's take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we'll get into how bad it got and, and how you dug yourself out of that hole and yeah. get into some Ronin tactics. <laughs> Nutrient survival. Feed your freedom. All right, so just covered some of your military career, went pretty in-depth with that, and um, we're wrapping it up, and now you're getting ready to go back into civilian life for the uh, dreaded transition. Yeah, yeah. Well, first I want to start off with, you know, um, my mission in Cameroon, um, doing the counter poaching campaigns. I actually graduated from college then. So I fulfilled that promise to my mother. You know, I promised my mother when I graduated from high school that I would finish college. And 
throughout my whole military career, still fighting and employing, I was going to college. And uh, I was on a Cameroon commando camp and I took my final exam and I graduated with honors um, while fighting counter-poaching campaigns. Wow. But I was facing depression during that time frame. Um, but that was a promise I made to my mother, you know, and that I kept. So here I am, you know, I, I knew I was really messed up, you know, and I, I didn't want to admit it to anybody. It was a personal pride thing for me, but I knew I wasn't there anymore. Mentally, I wasn't there. I was um, I just lost, man. You know what I mean? I was just lost. And I wanted to find my path again, you know? So um, I decided that 23 years, 23 years was, was good enough. And and uh, I had a lot of unfinished business in the military, but it was at a point where I had to find my my peace. Yeah, you know, I had to find that. And that journey was—it's, you know, as a veteran, that journey is very difficult. It's very difficult in a lot of ways, and um, I don't know what the first thing that hit you was, um, but one of the major things that hit me before. Uh, or that I kind of came to the realization of before I realized everything else that was going on, um, you know, in my head from, you know, being in combat that long is, is one of the hardest things to do is leave the team and watch the team go on mm -hmm. to the next stop and you're not there anymore. And, um, what, what was the first thing that kind of hit you? You know, I, I I wanted to retire, so I moved over to more of the operations side of the house, and I wasn't very well put together back then. You know, it was just really dealing with some internal issues. So when I um, when the teens were deploying, you know, yeah, I felt the same thing, Sean. You know, just you just don't know. You just feel like you can do more. You don't know when to quit. Yeah. My father told me once when I first joined the teams, um, I asked him, I said, when, when did you know, you know, when, when is it enough? He goes, you know, you'll know. He, he never even talked about it. He just, you'll know. And I did at that point, I, I, what was more important to me than anything operations or being a commando was finding my peace, you know? And, uh, that was, that was a long process, <laughs> right? Um, you don't just find your peace, you know, you don't just go from the teams and then you, now you're in the civilian world and instantly you're, you're safe and at peace. That's not how it works. You don't find your peace by, you know, reaching a level of money and success. You don't find it there. That's not where peace is at. You know, it took me a while to realize that. Peace is found in what you do daily. Peace is found in growth and spirituality and, and stuff like that. So I want, I want to explain this to you because this is the seed of how I healed myself. Okay. So when I was going through all my times, you know, I, I honorably retired out of the military 23 years. Now I'm at home. I'm this retired civilian, you know, no direction. Ronin, has, Ronin isn't Ronin yet, you know. Ronin Tactics isn't Ronin Tactics yet. My wife was working up in Denver, uh, Colorado. You know, she uses she has a business degree, accounting degree, masters. You know, so she's a big deal in that world. You know, and here she is. You know, she's this big time manager managing all these people in a major you know corporation. And uh, you got a commando 
for 23 years free, right? Free mm -hmm. from the military. And what I did all day was I slept. I slept in a dark room, shades down. Uh, I was in bed all day. Were you still on yes. the drugs, the oxys, the benzos, the sleeping pills? Yeah. It, you know, and that's what people, you know, people have judged me on it. And they're like, well, you shouldn't have done that. You're right. You're right. But when, when you've been hurt, when you've been, when you got hit by IED, when when you have over a certain amount of free fall jumps, combat equipment, you know, you're just living that life, that team life. Man, your body takes a beating. Am I right, Sean? Oh yeah, definitely takes a beating. So you know the the painkillers that they prescribe to us. I mean, that's a failed situation because what works in this treatment, the next treatment you're going to require too, and it just continues to grow until it spirals your world out of control. You know. The other thing with those that got me was <clears throat> it started as as treating injuries, physical injuries, mm -hmm. but then when you're taking those, and especially the you know the oxy or the the the, the opiates, is you you immediately start to realize the it, it suppresses your thoughts, mm -hmm. it slows you down. You don't really give a shit about anything, and uh, just you know, just like you were saying, it, it you'd finally become numb. That makes you even more numb, and I think that's where the the addiction uh, really comes in. Is you're you're suppressing all those thoughts. I wanted that numbness. Yeah, you know, I, I was in pain. You know, I lost friends. You know, and I. And it really bothered me because, you know, some of these, man, some of my teammates, I actually physically carried off the battlefield, their dead bodies. And some of them I laid down in their final resting place at, at funeral services. So that pain is there, you know, you just, I don't care how, how much you mask it with, you know, but the medication, it allowed me to numb it. And I almost lived in this state of numbness, you know, and you're talking about, you know, the sleeping pills. It's not just opiates. I was addicted to sleeping pills. I was addicted to um, uppers. And, and and the reason why is that during the height of the war, I mean, we're on a pager, right? So you're going out and you're conducting these nightly raids or reconnaissance missions and everything. And in daytime, you know, you come back and you sleep. But if there's a daytime HVI target, you're going to get your pagers going to go off and you're going to get and do what you need to do, even those day. So it's... It's never a uh, a cycle. It, it's it's can happen anytime. The missions, right? So you never really rest, right? No. In these combat deployments. So you know the recce missions. I mean, we have to stay awake seventy two hours sometimes, maybe seven days, ten days, depending on the op. You know, I'm not saying stay awake, but you're you're sleep deprived. You're you know you're not eating right. You're laying in some kind of old abandoned mall or somewhere across Baghdad in a hide site. And you're hypervigilant. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, you know, they gave us, um, they gave us uppers, you know, to stay awake for that long time. And then when you come off of that op where you can't sleep because your mind is spinning on when is that pager going to go off again. So you, you take downers, which was, you know, uh, Ambien, which is a sleeping pill, and you know that can be addictive. Yep. Right? So it, it caused you to 
change your mood, right? Change your, you know, change your mood sometimes. And and for us, a, a person that's in that much pain, you don't want to be in that painful state. So you want to always constantly change your mood or you want to mask it. So um, that was my roller coaster, man, you know? I was I was really addicted. And you ever had a moment in your life where you look in the mirror and you're just not happy with who you are? Yeah. I've had several of those. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my wife was going up into Denver. She was working in these jobs. I was laying around in this um, bed all day, and I was just so tired, man. Like, just really run down, you know, fatigue. My body's aching. Um, I just had enough. Had enough. And I wanted a moment to change. I really wanted that, but I didn't know how. I was um, sitting on my couch one day in a dark house. You know, I had a blanket wrapped around me. My wife was up working in Denver, and I was just really feeling down that day. It was just a bad day. You ever stared at an empty TV that's off? You're sitting there staring at a TV that's not even on? Yes, I have. So the house was dark, and I had a blanket wrapped around me, and I, I, I don't... I was walking around the house and I can't tell you what drew me to the final location. You know, I, I walked around this dark house and somehow I ended up in my office. You know, I have a war room of all my war trophies. I have a huge library because I'm a big reader. And it put me in front of my bookcase. Don't even know how I got there. Don't even know why I'm opening up my, my bookcase and my hand reached in there without even looking. I'm going to pull it out the Book of Five Rings. Haven't read this book since I was 13. You know. And the Book of Five Rings, if you don't know, was written by a Ronin back in the late 1500s. He died uh, after um, writing the Book of Five Rings uh, in a Buddhist cave where he meditated. He was a warrior. He was a philosopher. He was a gardener. He was a renowned swords, master swords, swordsman, you know, undefeated as a warrior and this Ronin fought in major wars and he killed a lot of people. And he, um, the story is that, you know, he, he came to a point in his life that he needed peace and he retreated to, uh, Kumoto, Japan, where, uh, it was a mountainous region in Japan and used to have been all covered in water, you know, back in the, you know, the, uh, prehistoric days, that whole area in used to been because Japan's an island, you know. And so it's a lot of coral reefs in this this area. So imagine the terrain, rugged uh, mountainous terrain, coral reefs. Um there was a Buddhist temple there. And Masashi went there and he meditated there and found his peace. For three years he meditated and reflected on his life. And at two o'clock in the morning, he, he said it on the, on the book. He, he finally, after meditation for three years, he picked up um, the ink and he wrote the Book of Five Rings. Ten days later, he died in the Buddhist cave. You know, I, when I picked up this book, you know, I opened up the book and I didn't know even what I was looking at, you know. And it was a passage that said, all your strength all your all your love all your passion is within you 
everything exists within you. Don't look anywhere else. The answer is within you, nowhere else, you know? And you know what's really unique was at that time I was looking for the answers everywhere else. I was looking for happiness and success and everything externally, you know? So I would call my my stepfather and I'm like, hey man, how did you do it? How did, how did you do it? How did you do a career and, and get over that war? You didn't have an answer. I'll call my teammates, you know, hey guys, how's it going? How, what you guys up to? You know, I was looking for the answers everywhere else. So Masashi, you know, that, that, that book, the book of five rings reminded me that everything is within all of our love, all of our compassion, everything is within. I needed to fix this broken man, you know, spiritually. So I remember closing that book and, um, you ever had a moment of rage when you look in the mirror and you're just like, I really hate this person. Mm -hmm. It was rage. It wasn't anger. It was rage. I was very upset at the path. I lost myself, you know? So I remember opening up my, my medicine cabinet and things started falling out from all the medication that was in this cabinet. I mean, guys, you know, how many, how many veterans have died from overdosing drugs? I mean, that's a normal thing nowadays, right? It's sad. Yeah. So I saw this dropping down and... I don't know. I just had that rage, that that fire. So I took it. I dumped it all down the toilet. I flushed it. Every everything I had. Well, let me tell you what happens when you go quit cold turkey after I don't know five to eight years of being on these meds. You know that wall, that numbness that you talk about, that wall that we that holds us from the realities of life. Well, that wall is gone, and I felt it, man. I felt the weight of the world. It came, my whole life came crashing out because I didn't have the the chemicals, right, to block yeah. it. So I felt it. it. If you think about a stream of water, all that emotion hit me at once. And, you know, it was really hard. It was a really hard time in my life. And um, that's when uh, I, I reflected, right, like Masashi. So I basically took his concept and I closed myself off to the world, right? And there was a, uh, in my office, you know, uh, I set up a meditation area, you know, and um, I made a promise to myself that I need to find my here and now, you know? So when I say that is when, when people say, what's that mean here and now? You know, what's Zazen mean? What's that mean? You know, how many times have you gone throughout your day and subconscious years just thinking about, man, you're thinking about more negative stuff. You know that a normal human being thinks about 75% of their life, like their day, 75% of their day is thinking about negative stuff. I did not know that. Monitor your thoughts. 75% of your day, a normal human being, 75% of their, they're focused more on the negatives. They're focusing on the anxieties of the future. They're focused on mistakes of the past. So you're always living within those two time zones, the past or the future, never in that present moment. You're never there in that present moment. And in all of time, in the past, future, present, the present encompass all of time. 
what you do now reflects your future. What you do now is will either get you over your past or imprison you from your past, right? So I, I, I realized that and, um, you know, I reflected. And man, you know, I, I made my share of mistakes. I'm a human being. And the first step was forgiving myself. I wrote it all down. You know, I had this book and I wrote it all down. And I remember getting into, uh, I, I wrote down mindfulness meditation was a practice I wanted to get into. Now, when I was out in first group, you know, I travel all through Asia, you know. So I got to see the monks. Like I meditated with the Tibetan monks, the Thai monks, you know, the Philippine. I, I meditated, they were more uh uh, Catholic, but there were certain countries that are very Buddhist, and I meditated, and I, uh, not that I'm Buddhist, but I, I, I wanted to learn the practice of Zazen here and now. Now, I wanted to bring you back. I was doing mountain operations in, um, in Leh, India, which is the border of Pakistan. So we're doing a uh, mountain warfare training. So you're at 18,500 feet. Shit. Right? So you're carrying oxygen tanks up there. We're doing cliff assaults. And on the weekends, you know, we have time off and uh, I would go to the temples and there was this Tibetan monk. And it was after my uh, my time in the Philippines, you know, the war in the Philippines, we lost some teammates in the Philippines. And, and uh, the Philippines was, it was cruel, man. You know, the, the, the Abu Sayyaf bandits with rape, murder, kill, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the Christians and the Catholics in that area because they wanted an independent Muslim state. So after my time there, there was a, there was pain there from that, you know? So um, I had a linguist with me and I went to go visit the Tibetan monk and I asked the linguist to translate for me. And I asked the monk, you know, why is the world so cruel? You think, you think about the Sean, like, you know, I was born out of war. I, you know what I mean? So that's, that, that's a legitimate question for me. Why, why is it so cruel? And the monk um, shook my hand, took me out back of the temples, and there was a, uh, a dirt courtyard. Right, and he, the monk took a stick and he drew a, uh, a circle onto just dirt ground. And he sat there and he had these two sacks that he threw outside of the circle. And one sack was full of black rocks and the other sack was full of white rocks. And he told the, the linguist, he said, um, when he, he would sit here for years, you know, four years is what kind of is coming to my mind right now. But he sat there for a long time, every single day. And he said he would look at this circle on the ground. And when he would think of a negative thought, he would take a black rock and cast it into this circle in the dirt. And he said for many years, you know, he, 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 he was casting black rocks into the circle. And eventually um, he started casting white and now it's all white rocks. And I'm like, whoa, what changed? Why, why the negative to the positive? How has that changed? And he said, it's simple. The human being, we don't, we go through life focusing on the negatives. And if, unless you know what you're, you're thinking about subconsciously, then you can't do anything about it. So because I'm totally aware of my thoughts, my negative thoughts, then I'm able to influence my negative thoughts. But I'm un unaware of this, then I go through living life negative. 
And the world was so cruel because people are unaware of the negative in this world, the evils of this world. And if they, and he said, if people are able to control their emotions, the world will be less cruel. Makes total sense. It does. Right? If we're able to control our emotions. So I thought about that, right? What was weird is fast forwarded to now, this dark room, depression. That image came back in my mind. When I was wargaming, how am I going to get through this depression? Right? So I Googled, right? The reasons for laying in bed all day in a dark room. <laughs> and the word depression popped up. I'm like, oh, that can't be. That can't be. So I re-Googled causes for being fatigued post-war. Depression popped up. PTSD. I'm like, oh no. So it worried me enough where I went to go see, you know, a doctor. And the doctor was like, look, son, you know, this is normal. You've been through it. Um you have depression. Here's some antidepressants. Good luck. Mm -hmm. You see, the army, the military practices Western-style medication, right? Western-style medicine is, I'm going to fill you up with meds to make that go away, but all of it's temporary. The Eastern side of medication is internal, right? You're, you're not you're relying on the externals. You're relying on the internal. To heal your body internally. So the monk said that it resonated with me and I wanted to walk the path of Eastern practice. All right. So it started off with me carrying a book notebook around and writing down my thoughts throughout the day. And my hard days, I would write the deepest notes. And I would practice meditation every morning, every afternoon, and every night. The monk did say to me that I say, hey, hey, monk, what's the best form of, uh, of meditation? I asked him that. And the monk smiled and he said, the one that you do every day. So I Googled, right, mindfulness meditation. So I got the, you know, the, the con op. I got that down. I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. How hard is it to sit there and just concentrate your breathing? It can't be that hard. I focus on my breathing. That's it. Nothing else. So uh, I was so confident. I bought a meditation uh, seat, mattress, um, that you sit on the ground. I uh, bought that on Amazon. And I'm like, this is going to be an easy day. So I went down into my quiet office. I closed the door. Closing the door means I'm trapping my spirit in that room. The hmm. spirit walks in that room. If I'm talking to you right now and you're thinking about your wife, then your mind drifts over to wherever she's at. If I talk about your past, your mind then drifts back to your childhood. Your mind is always floating. How do you capture that? So in my con op, I was like, well, if I lock this door, then my spirit is locked in here with me. So then I sat down and I started into my meditation practice of breathing, you know where you focus only on the breathing, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. I'll tell you what, I thought about Yemen, Libya. I thought about my wife up in Denver. I thought about everything else but breathing. Yeah. The noise. The noise. I, I've been hearing this noise for so long, and you just can't turn off that noise because you've been doing this every single day for, I don't know, your whole life. So how can you reprogram a mind that's used to going to your mind is free flowing like this? You're not controlling it.
man, I failed. I failed the first day, the second day, the first year, second year. Around the third year, I was sitting out in the deck, right? Now, when I say I failed, I went down every morning and I did it. Every afternoon I did it. Every nighttime I did it. Even though I was failing, I was sitting there over and over and over and doing it. How long were you attempting? Like, what was your daily? Did you have a time limit or? Yeah, yeah. So initially I, I, I was overachiever. I was like, I'm going to go 30 minutes, right? And then uh, it cracked down to two minutes. And then it went to five minutes. And now I'm back up to 45 minutes. Wow. Right. So, so I had to go back down because I couldn't lock in at, at that long of iteration. My mind started drifting, you know? So when I was failing all this, man, I was really depressed because I'm trying to make myself better and I'm failing and failing and failing every single day. It was around the third year I was sitting outside on the deck and I was just enjoying the day, you know? And heard the birds chirping. Let me let me explain this to you. My mind was never there enough where I can hear birds. It was always somewhere else. I haven't heard birds since the beginning of the war. You can hear them, obviously, right? I can mm -hmm. hear the noise, but I never really said, wow, how beautiful is that? You weren't present. And so those were the signs, and I wasn't really seeing it in the beginning. But later on, I started catching on. Like, I have to be present to hear those birds. I have to be present to see the sun come up. Nutrient survival, spec ops grade nutrition. You know, so now I was slowly indoctrinating myself to live in the present moment. Okay. I was still failing meditation, right? Also during that time of me finding my peace, you know, um, I entrepreneur a company, Ronin Tactics. Ronin tying back into the Book of Five Rings, Masashi, the words that gave me the courage I needed to take the first steps in finding my peace. So that's why it's Ronin. That's why I call myself Ronin Tactics. Because at the birth of my company, I was at the lowest point in my life. And Ronin, if you understand that word, means masterless, right? Wave man, wonder. But it also means during frugal periods, Japan, disgrace. It does. It means disgrace. Right? So at that point, I was really low. So that's why I named myself initially, I named myself Ronin because I was embarrassed to be in my own skin. So when I was starting to practice uh, the form of meditation, around three years, I started getting into it. But, you know, what's really funny is because I was starting my company and I, I'm a really big martial artist and I started just filming my training events. I started going around and teaching. That's part of my healing process. That's why you see me traveling all through America. I can, I can easily be in Colorado and just teach in Colorado and they can all come in, but that's not the journey I wanted to take. 
The journey I wanted to take was take my wife and for us to experience our new journey together and our steps together in helping to reshape our Americans, right? And I can start doing that by the human beings that swore allegiance to God and their community to protect that community, so our police officers. If I want to affect a community, right, as a Green Beret, I, I trained the commando force that had sworn an allegiance to protect that community. So that's where I started. I started with the police officers, right? So it became a warrior in the garden. You know, people ask me, what's that look like, the warrior in the garden? I don't know what that looks like. But I am a warrior in the garden because I took my life experience and the combat experience. I'm giving back to what I perceive as the good in this world, right? And if I want to protect my communities and our country and make it better, then I, I train the people who swore an allegiance to that community. I also train civilians, you know? So during that process of me traveling around the United States, and I call it, um, my friend called it Ninja Camp, because I start off with combatives, right? And I go into the Bushido and the way and the mind of a warrior and the responsibilities that we need to, in the, in the proper way of living, you know, as a warrior. And then I go into the skills of lethality. Because how do you control violence, Sean? With violence. That's right. So I give the good in this world the art of violence, right? At that level that I fought in, I give them that with the way behind it, which is compassion. So now you have this, this skill set with compassion, right? And you control the hate and the violence and the evil in this world through violence, right? So I teach them that. And then through that process, I started filming. I started posting on, on social media. And um, I got an email from the History Channel. <laughs> so the History Channel, they knew I'm a big knife guy. Right, and they're like, "Hey, um, would you be interested in being on a TV show?" And you know, this this is what I, I want to talk to you about, man. Because being a team guy, right, our world is so secret, right? I, we 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 walk and we hang out with each other during operations and after work because who who else can we talk these stories about? Who who else can we vent that off to? Who else is red on? There, there's nobody. So you're very alone during yeah. that, that. And the only peers that you have is your team guys, if they're even red on to that project. Right? So I realized this and, um, you know, I wanted, I wanted to, to change. Right. So I started promoting my training, the training side of the house of Ronin started picking up our, all of our events. I can truly tell you, man, all of our events sell out, you know, even to this day. And um, it's very successful. Ninja camp, you know. So um, the History Channel uh, contacted me. It was their talent team. And they're like, would you like to be a co-host on a show? for uh, this show called Forge and Fire, Knife or Death, which is like Ninja Warrior where they run through an obstacle course with a blade. I'm like, oh, how cool is that, right? <laughs> I'm like, what do you need me to do? And they're like, I just need you to bring your expertise in. So talk about the geometry of the blade, talk about 
did, will this blade do good as a forging blade, as a chopping blade, based off of your survival skills? And because I know my knives, you know, I had to use those tools to fabricate um, living quarters in the jungle, you know. Yeah. So I have, I, I know my blades, and um, and uh, we linked up with, uh, you know, the host of the show, which is Bill Goldberg, WWE wrestler, you know. And it was really cool because we hit it off, you know. So they flew me into Atlanta, which is um, the new Hollywood, you know, Atlanta, Georgia. And um, when I say that, it's a lot of the, the shooting in Hollywood is going on in Atlanta now, just tax breaks and location. So they had this old abandoned hangar, you know, my first day on the set. Pull up, limo pulls me into this compound, right? And um, they... Security guard checks me in, and then my assistant comes running out. She introduced herself, and she walked me to a movie star trailer. It was huge, man, this movie star trailer. And I, I want to say this is I'm not used to this. <laughs> right? I'm used to living in the dirt, the mud, uh, eating like crap, you know? So now I have two assistants. I had a my name on... Uh, it said talent on the door and it had this movie star trailer and that next to me was Bill Goldberg and his movie star trailer. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, the producer comes in, introduce himself saying, you know, it's great to work with you. This is your lines. They sent me my strip, uh, my scripts and I had to recite the script, you know, and then I had a makeup artist come in and put makeup on my face. And I had a, a tone coach come in and talk to me at tones, you know, it was really weird. And um, we would hang out in the trailer, right? Basically, you know, all morning and then until they need you on the set. So then they, they call me, two lamb to the set, right? So my system bangs on the door. She goes, sir, I need you on the set. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I come out, I walk 15 yards from my front entryway to a golf cart. And the assistant would drive me literally 50 yards down the street to set. I couldn't walk there. Yeah. So they drive me down there and I step off of the go uh, of the uh, golf cart and the makeup artist then looks at my makeup just in case it might have smeared for me riding 50 yards down there. <laughs> for the 15 second golf yeah. cart ride? Yeah. And um, man, they had 15 cameras on us, you know, on tracks, you know, they're big time production, you know. They had 150 people on the set. Wow. You know, setting up the stage, the background, it was, it was really cool. Had these fire barrels burning. It was just, whoa, this is Hollywood, you know? Yeah. Bill Goldberg comes in, really, really cool dude, you know? Uh, he has a presence to him. And uh, he was reading old script. Him and I hit it off. We're still friends to this day. But I want you to talk about this first day, right? So the producer's in my face talking about how I should act. I had a... Uh, fiber optic earpiece in where the control room uh, was talking to me and how I should, um, what conversation I should have about the blade, like to go into that blade. All right. So what, what talk to me about the geometry in that blade. So I'm like, Oh, the geometry in that blade, you know, I'm hearing all these earpieces and makeup artists going and I had my assistant ask me what I want for lunch, you know? So it's really like, I was, I was having a little bit of anxieties. Yeah is out of my environment. Because you know what was going on in my environment? In my mind was about 30 yards to that front door. That door's a, 
Middle saw corridor swings open. That's my escape route. This is my exit route. Why is this guy so close to me? I'm looking at threats. I'm looking. That's what we're trained to do, right? Yeah. So I had to like close off that that mindset and go. Okay, to you're in this present moment. You're in Hollywood, right? Um. Somehow I made it through it, you know. And um, we filmed for three seasons. It was a successful show, and um. But during that time in filming, I was still traveling around the United States with my wife, and I would train. And we were developing our business uh, in in uh, in Ronin Tactics, as in, you know, merchandise. So it was really taking off for us. I was still depressed. I was still fighting it, right? So every day I would meditate, and I was going through all this. And then Infinity Ward, which is Call of Duty, um, contacts me and say, hey, we're really interested to have you capture your motions on the game, your movements, right? Your martial arts. So, you know, we had an initial conversation with them. They wanted to capture my movements. You know, it's just, we were just so busy, you know? Mm -hmm. So I didn't think too much of it. Um, we did talk to them, but I just didn't think too much of it. You know, you just want to capture my movements. And then we flew out to San Francisco while I was trained with their uh, law enforcement teams on close quarters combat. And then, uh, you know, they follow me on social media and they're like, hey, you're in San Francisco. We want to fly you from San Francisco to L.A. So here I am doing CQB training. And in two days, I got to fly to L.A. and interview with Infinity Ward, you know. So my wife and I, we flew into L.A. and um, they took us into their their compound, basically. It's a more secure compound than a Special Forces compound. I mean, it's it's legit, you know. They know what they're doing. So um, we signed them on. We met the, the president of Infinity Award and we hit it off and he asked me to be a part of the game. He wanted Ronan to be a part of the game. So that's how um, I was entered into the game. We do motion capture for him. So a lot of the martial art moves, um, the gunfighting scenes, uh, it's coming up with our new contract with them. So um, it was a huge journey. And then, but I think what what's really unique about Infinity Ward, Call of Duty, Opportunities, and also the History Channel was um, my platform. You know, it, it, it got bigger, right? So along with that comes, um, well, you have your haters, obviously, but along with that comes, I have a huge fan base. So why not, I'm working on myself, why not give others like the tools they need to find their happiness? So, you know, my healing process became me just writing my thoughts on Instagram. And then I found out that that helps other people. And in that process, I started healing. Had you put together yet that all this good that you're injecting into the world is coming back around full circle to you? It is. With these opportunities? Yeah. It was starting to come back around. And, you know, at that time, I didn't see it. I didn't see because I'm giving, I'm receiving. You know, I didn't see it like that. I just wanted to give because I'm healing that way. I was just healing that way, you know? One step at a time, and I was like, man, I helped this person. I feel better about myself, and I heal that way. But I want to go back to this. So, you know, I, I started going and seeing a lot of professionals, like scientists. I, I would listen to lectures and and how, how the human brain functions and all that, you know. Because as Special Forces soldier, we dive into intelligence. Mm -hmm. 
where we don't just fight a war. We look at the intelligence of the situation and we develop a course of action in order to combat that. Well, my my combat was in, within myself, right? I was fighting an internal war. So I needed to arm myself with intelligence. So I was going to these seminars, these doctors, these uh, scientists. And, and you know why 75% of our day is focused on the negative? Do you know why? I don't. So, you know, everything goes back to the creation of a human being, right? So when we were created as cavemen, our mind and body is hardwired, right? We're an animal. We're just an intelligent animal, but we're, we're still an animal, right? Every animal is born with a survival instinct. We see it, right? An animal uh, that lives in the jungle, he has a survival instinct. That's what keeps him alive. A human being since day one has a survival instinct and our mind is connected to our body. We're highly intelligent. So that means that we can think about something that's very stressful and we'll feel that stress through our body, right? Think about like anxieties. When you think about something, you, it forms anxieties. You think about a loss or a failure, you have anxieties or whatever, you can feel it. You can physically feel this. Okay, so the human being's neurological pathway is connected from the mind to the body. We're, nursely, we're neurologically wired that way. Fast forward that, you know, fast forward that to modern times. Well, we're not being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. We're not, you know, we're not trying to fight to survive for our next meal anymore. But what is today? What's today, saber-toothed tiger? What's today's threat? And I'll tell you, for a normal human being, today's threat is the opinions of other people. And acceptance. Acceptance, opinions of other people on today's social world is social media, right? When somebody talks bad about you, right? I think about how many kids are killing themselves today because they're getting insulted on a social media platform, just words. Yeah. Right, but they're so focused on that because their survival instinct is saying focus on that because that's negative, and you need to look at that because that's a threat to you. So imagine you can have a thousand people that says, you know, Sean, you're the man. Really respect you, man. Thank you for being such a great American. And then you have one guy who said, nope. Do you focus on that? I do. You do. I do too, because that's a natural instinct as an animal species. You're hardwired that way. You're going to focus on that because now that's negative, right? Well, that's not a path to happiness. That might keep you alive, right? But that's not a path to happiness. So what I realized was my training and everything that kicked in, I will never find happiness. If I continue to live with the same mindset that made me who I am in the military, I will never find happiness. So I, I went to Tony Robbins seminar, right? It's about leadership and, and life. And Tony Robbins, you know, claim to fame is uh, he can uh, change his physiology. He has this exercise that he does to change his physiology. And um, if the body's connected to the mind, if you change your physiology, your physical state, then you can change your mind and how it reacts. Remember that smile I talked about, smile and be brave? Yeah. Well, the brain is connected neurologically to a smile 
registers to your brain that everything is good, everything's okay, because you've been establishing that neurological pathway since you're a child. Smiling, it's good, right? So now that your body is sending information to your brain, your brain is saying, hey, everything's good because you're smiling. Same thing. So uh, Tony Robbins talked about if you have a bad day, you change your physiology and then that can change your, your mind state. So what he does is he changes physiology. It's like booting up a computer, right? And then now he's going to inject positive thoughts into that computer, which is your brain. And that's how you do it. Hmm. So I'm like, huh, that makes sense. It makes sense, but how's, how's that happen, right? So yeah. I went through his seminar because I wanted to learn it more. And the guy took all these practices from around the world. He meditated with monks. He walked through fire. I mean, this guy's the real deal, you know? So um, I realized that majority of us, if we walk around, we focus on the negative, and you're just going to be a negative guy. So if your survival instinct is to focus on the negative, and that's a human thing, how do you break it? You ever had something that happened to you and you, you can't shake it? Mm -hmm. You think about it all day subconsciously, you just can't, it doesn't matter. You can beat your head to a wall and you, it's just there. It's always there. You can go cut the grass and it's still there in the background talking to you. Yeah. That's because you can't shake it. So Tony Robbins talked about changing the physiology. So how do you do that, right? So, you know, in the mornings is when I practice it the most nowadays, in the mornings. And uh, the reason why I say that is if I'm able to wake up at a peak stake in the morning, you ever had a good morning with a lot of energy? And you feel like you can accomplish anything during the day. Yeah. You ever had a bad morning where you don't feel like doing anything? I've had those too. So if I can tell you, if I could put your mind and body at a peak stake every single day, you think you can accomplish anything as a human being? Yeah. Right. So that's called living intelligently. So now I want it because now I understand how the, the mind and body connection works. Right. I understand the intelligence, the situation. Now I can develop a course of action to intercept that, right? So first is monitor my thoughts, going back to that monk. I started monitoring my, I write down what I'm thinking. It was, man, it was so negative. <laughs> Just negative. And um, then I started changing my practice in the morning. Just instead of meditating in the morning, right, I started throwing in other applications like gratitude. You know, if I can express gratitude in the morning, then how can you not be happy if you're grateful for everything in your life? You know, how you, are you expressing that? Okay. So you have a lot of things that's great in your life, Sean. You have a beautiful family, a beautiful house, successful company, but yet you're focused on the negative. Why? Because of that animal instinct. It, it, forces you to focus on but if i if i change your physiology and i inject john you have a great life you have a beautiful family you have a beautiful life and a beautiful company that you started yourself great job and you inject that in every morning you're grateful for that how can you not have a great day you're you're at a peak stake now right so i do so my process now in the morning is i get up at 4 30 in the morning I changed my physiology is I take a shower and, and for the next, for the last minute, I turn it to ice cold water. And basically I'm shocking my body. So I'm seeing all these bloods 
uh, cells to my muscles to keep it warm, right? So now I'm truly alive. I can feel my body alive because muscle is rushing. I mean, blood is rushing through all my muscles to keep it warm. So I get out and get dressed and then I go out to my quiet meditation place and there's a, a cross out there and I, I pray to God, right? So prayer. So the thing is, I'm, I'm not here to talk about religion, right? But I am here to talk about if you believe in a higher form of living, right? If you believe in a higher purpose than yourself, a higher being, a creator, then you're going to live up to that creator. You're going to live up to that power, that higher power. If you don't believe in a higher power, you're going to live up to yourself, which is addictions, selfishness. You're going to drive your whole day around everything that's good for you and not everything that's good for that higher power. That makes sense. Okay. So if you believe in that, right, now you can live up to that higher power. So first it was God, right? And then I go into changing my physiology. So literally I sit down and I change my breath, my, my breathing patterns. You think about when you're, you're a seal. So when you hold your breath and you hold that breath and you exhale that breath, well, you have more oxygen in your brain. It changes your physiology, right? So basically I'm waking up my brain. I'm injecting more oxygen into my brain. So I take nine quick steps like, and then I inhale my last breath at 10, 10 seconds inhaled, hold for 10 seconds, 10 second exhale. And you, you're going to feel it. It changes your whole physiology, right? And then at that moment when, when my brain's awake, I have a notebook. And I physically, not thinking, I physically write down three to four things I'm grateful for in my life. You know, for me, it's I'm grateful for my wife, her health and her love. I'm grateful for my parents, their health and support and love. I'm grateful for God and this day. I'm grateful for my health, and I promise to this higher power that I will do everything within this day to be my best self. So I inject those positive thoughts after I wake up the brain, and then after that, I go into meditation, so uh, here and now. So basically, I'm training my brain to be in the present moment. Okay, so... I go into a form of meditation. It's called mindfulness meditation of Zazen, where it's five seconds inhale, five seconds exhale, five seconds inhale, five seconds exhale. There's a posture, a form of meditation, you know? Um, so I go into that and then I do about, for now, I do 45 minutes of that because I can lock in now. Back then I couldn't, right? And as soon as that, man, I feel, um, it's like drinking coffee, right? That you feel that adrenaline going through your body, that that energy resonating through your body. They actually did a uh, a study on this this monk that was meditating, and they had um, I don't know these spectrums of light, and they found energy radiating from his body. No shit. Yeah. So I feel that's what's going on in my body. I feel incredible energy in the mornings. And after that, I burn it down, man. I go down to my gym and I destroy my body. You know, depending on whatever fitness plan I have going on that month. And it changes. My goal changes and, and that changes. 
So the Tony Robbins seminar, this, this is the keynote here, and you're going to take away so much from this, is there are moral uh, needs of a human being. Uh, Tony talks about, he breaks it down into significance, certainty, uncertainty, love and connection. Love and connection being uh, the same thing, right? And then he has spiritual needs, which is growth and contribution, okay? So a normal human being, man, you think about for us, to be who we are, type A personality, to be who we were in the military, in the world, and who we are in, in war, Man, you have to place a higher level of standard on yourself, right? You have this higher level than, than a normal person because you pass through that rigorous training. You have to have a strong mind. So significance had to be your number one priority that you put as number one importance in your life because you have such a high standard, non-quit attitude, because you hold yourself at a higher standard in anybody else. So significance is your number one. And that's going to get you pretty far in life when it comes to business and uh, career, because you're placing the higher standard first. Makes sense. And then being a CEO or Green Beret, we work in the uncertainty. We're not scared to take risk. That's why you're successful in your business. You're not scared to take risk, right? And then you have certainty and then you have love and connection. Now, where I went wrong was what worked for me in the military, I was trying to take that, what made me so successful and replicate that into the next evolution of my life, which is now business, public exposure, fame, you know, being in, in TV shows and video games. I was trying to take what worked for me and made me significant in the army and trying to replicate that in a civilian sector, and it didn't work. I never found happiness, but my career and my success in business was growing, yeah. but I wasn't happy. I placed too much emphasis on significance. And so after this Tony Robbins seminar, I realized that whatever you place the value as first as a moral value would decide how you're going to live. So you place significance first, Sean, because you're this badass Navy SEAL. And then now you go into a business world and you're just huge, successful person because your significance is first. A guy on social media who is jealous of your success badmouths you. Now you focus on that because you place significance first. You care about what that other person thinks because that's so important to you because significance is what's driving you in your life. I was that way. I was never happy. So I replaced significance with compassion, love. You know, I placed that first now. And love is tied to gratitude. Gratitude's tied to happiness. Right? Significance is tied to, yes, it's a powerful energy that can get you there, but the negative is you're concentrating what other people say about you. Yeah. You care about living for somebody else's opinion because you value significance. I think that also ties into ego. Yes. Huge. Do you believe me when I say majority of the team guys have a huge ego? I I more than believe it. I know. <laughs> I know it. Yeah, I was guilty for that. Yeah. You know, because that's the culture. 
you just don't see it until you step away from that culture, you know? And, you know, it's, and I'm not bad-mouthing the culture. You have to be who you have to be when you're there. And that's the fire and the drive that, that makes you who you are on the teams. But in this evolution, it's not going to work for you. It's not. Yeah. You know, like I said, you're going to, like the brain is hardwired like a caveman, you know, since the beginning of time. So you're focused on, because you value significance, you're focused on the negative. So easily, if you just place significance, it's still there. Your higher standard is still there, but you just don't place it first anymore. So when somebody badmouths me, when somebody's jealous of my success, when somebody ridicules me because they don't, man, I'm a human being, man. You know, and I uh, I have my own opinions on things, and not everybody's going to agree with you or like you, right? So how do you deal with that? You know, when somebody insults me online or in front of my face or not really in front of my face but when they do it online you know i just remind myself that i don't hold significance that important anymore would you say the first step to that is probably don't just don't engage yeah because you know we agree this is a hateful world we saw the worst in humanity in our old former jobs we saw the worst so in a hateful war, what are you going to do? Give more hate? Yeah. It takes a stronger person to show compassion. So I do. I show compassion. So when a hater hates on me, you know, I'm grateful. I am actually grateful. I look at that and I'm like, wow, so grateful that you fabricated a fake account and you're talking to me. Uh, you're you're putting me down, so you're spinning your day and your energy on somebody you don't even like. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for thinking of me. And because <laughs> you have no control over your emotions, which is the cause of majority of the hate in the world, this is how you act out. So I'm grat I, I I'm grateful that first you took time to insult me like that because you're thinking of me and you're viewing me at a distance. But second, I'm grateful because I don't want to be like you. And I forgive you. So what I just did, think about what I just did. I changed something that was negative into something that's positive. So it doesn't stay in my mind anymore because it's not negative, so I'm not going to think about it. It's defeating that survival mindset. Yeah. Now I look at that as, wow, that's a win. I'm grateful that you did that. So now I just don't care. Nutrient Survival, Spec Ops Grade Nutrition. You know, um, you had mentioned before that uh, you've written down all your flaws when you left uh, the team. And I think the most significant flaw maybe uh, was kindness. You said you did not have kindness and you 
you articulated that that was a weakness. You know, most guys coming out, probably just about everybody I know, would not consider not having kindness a weakness. And so <clears throat> being around that for 23 years, you know, you don't know what you don't know. How did you figure out that by not by not having kindness uh, in your heart or in your daily life, that was a weakness? Because I think it's actually quite the opposite in the team where kindness would be considered weakness. Mm -hmm. So you got to think about like two different evolutions, right? So what I drove as a weapon in this evolution, which is hate, you know, because in war you do use hate as a weapon, mm -hmm. you know, you drive off of that because you're, I mean, you are fearful for your life in a gunfight. So you use that aggression, that hate, but how do you take hate and put it into a civilian world in business? It doesn't work. Right. And yeah, what the team guys, you know, and when I say this is, you know, when I left the teams, I left the teams, man. You know, the team life, and you can back me up on this, is a very opinionated world. Yeah. You're type A personality, you know, so guys that they're going to tell you what they think and their opinions on things, and it's just the way it is, you know. Yeah. So when you step away from the teams, now you start hearing your own voice and what's truly important to you. And for me, it was happiness. So if I hold on to hate, and my end state is to be happy and complete and successful in my life and be happily married with my wife, then that kind of goes against that. So I had to kill off the energy that kept me alive. It's like killing off your best friend. Yeah. You know? So kindness, let's talk about that. At one point, you know, in, in, uh, after the war, I, I realized I'm not a kind human being anymore. I'm not mean or rude or anything. I, I'm very respectful, but I was just, I wasn't where I wanted to be in kindness. So I would uh, get dressed. I will go out in town and um, hang out at Starbucks. And when somebody walks through the door, I'll open up the door for them. I'm like, have a nice day. I'll go up to the counter. I'm like... Thank you so much for making me this coffee. I swear I go here because of you and you make the best coffee. Thank you so much. And I brighten up their day. You think that was hard? I do. That was very hard. It was very hard to even talk to a human being. But because I wanted to be kind, right, I needed to change who I am as a human being. So I went out and I was polite and kind. And, and after a year, I was kind again. You see, and the kindness led me to happiness. So you have to pick your energies, right, in life. You have to pick your battles, your energy. And for me, I realized that I put too much emphasis on significance. And that's why I failed in this evolution. I still have it. I mean, you still see me getting up at 4.30 in the morning. I still meditate. I still, so that's significance, but I just don't put value on that as so high anymore. Love Makes and a compassion. Yeah, love and compassion is is where I put it because I realize that's tied into gratitude and God and everything else. So, if I put that as the most important thing, then how can I not live my life in beauty and peace? And if I realize that something's affecting me, I know the practice of changing my physiology and getting rid of that thought. 
So I always have great days. Took me a long time to come realize that, you know. And let's talk about the, the last two, right? So spirituality. So you have your spiritual needs as in growth and contribution. You think about this, Sean, like if you, you know, you, you accomplish all this and then one day, let's say you retire and you don't want to work anymore. You don't want to educate yourself anymore or anything new and you just want to relax and just chill out. There's no growth in your life anymore. Within six months, you're going to be depressed. The reason why I'm saying this is because, you know, I'm in a Hollywood world and I, I meet some very successful people and they're very depressed. You know, you would think like you're, you're an actor, you make this amount of money, you got all this stuff. That's not what's going to make you happy. Yeah. Let's say you, you know, one of the proud days in your life was probably graduating buds, right? Yeah. Okay. So you, you felt the top of your world. How long that lasts? Not very long. Exactly. So growth, right? You can be this successful businessman, millionaire, entrepreneur, your own, you know, be this role model and everything. But if you're not really growing on a daily basis, you're going to be depressed. Robin Williams. I mean, do you think that has to do with ego at all, though? You know, constantly growing? Yeah. Remember what I told you last night? I said, you know, if you let go of the ego... Mm -hmm. and realize that you're in a new phase of your life. You just let that go. Who cares? Yeah. You know who you are. Let go of that ego. You don't need to You don't need to defend yourself against this person. Show them gratitude. Thank you for thinking of me. And then continue on with your own ways, you know. But ego is a huge, um, it stops you from living a complete life. Yeah. It stops you from learning, growing. And growth is spiritual. Right. So growth uh, every day, I educate myself on whatever, you know, I'm a huge science guy. I'm a huge history guy. So I read, educate myself. I learn new uh, trade crafts, you know, cameras. I, I, I'm an artist. I'm a gardener. You know what I mean? So I get into all that and I find that that balanced me from a warrior, you know, and I'm growing as a human being. The gym is huge for me because I push myself to muscle failure and through muscle failure is growth. And then I, uh, contribution, right? So during COVID, my wife and I would go um, and pack groceries for elderly people that cannot go out and, and, uh, and go shopping for their own food. So we pack foods for them to deliver to their homes. And that was contribution, contribution being a Ronin to give, to teach, you know. So that's how I, I, I overcame the depression, by changing what's important in my life, restructuring the order of what's important in my life. How long did it take you to quit living in the past? That's something that most I would say the majority of guys coming out, that it's it's a major hurdle, and it's a hurdle that a lot of guys don't ever get over, is living in the past, and 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 consistently comparing themselves to their peers or 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 the guys that are you know coming in or or it doesn't matter who anybody who's been in the community, it's. A lot of guys are consist are consistently comparing themselves. They're 
their service record to the next guy's yeah. service record, and it's just this never-ending, you know, it just never ends. Yeah, absolutely. So you, look, that's that's tied into ego, right? So let's say you're this really successful career commando, and and then you got this young guy who came in, and you're like, oh, well, back in my day, I did this, yeah. this, this, I had this, you know, you're nothing compared to what I went through. That's ego. Man, he's a great American just like you. He's just this, this is air. Right? So first I stopped comparing myself. And I uh, I show gratitude to to the team guys. Because that's a hard life. Yeah, it is. Right? So I, first I show gratitude. Thank you for what you do. You're the next generation of warriors. And if they think they're better than me, okay, you're better than me. Thank you. I don't, I don't play significance first anymore. So that's what I'm talking about. It ties into that. You know, when team guys can't let it go, that's because they're not living in the present moment. They're not applying to practice to live in the present moment. You can't just, oh, I, I want to live in the present moment and that's it. No, yeah. you have to practice. You have to, you're going to have to fail. You're going to have to try, you know, every single day and whatever you do every day becomes who you are, right? So for me, it was a practice of meditation every single day to live in the present moment. Like I told you, it took me five years. Yeah. You know, all this leads to, you know, happiness, right? And everybody says, you know, happiness. It takes it takes a lot of work. It's a, it's a it is a decision you have to make every yes. day, you know, to to actually be happy. And that's that's the beautiful word Jesus said, decision. So individual as a human being no matter your teams or your past or whatever, you have to make a decision as a human being right now that I don't want to be like this anymore. You know, that's where that moment of me reflecting in the mirror and that rage that came across me, me dumping that medication down the toilet, that was the decision I made at that point that I would not take one more moment of this. Decisions, right? Man, I still have team guys coming to me, egotistical guys talking and all that, bad-mouthing other guys. And you know what I do? I separate myself from them. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, it's just, for what? Yeah. You know, you want to bad-mouth another American? Okay. You're, 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 you're who you are then. Yeah. And I'm not going to judge you, man. I know you're going through it. So I don't judge them. You know, I wish them the best. But as for me, you know, I know I'm not perfect and I'm just trying to right my wrongs and I'm trying to live my life as a human being to be happy. So that's what led to a lot of my success, you know, is it's really the more you give, the more you receive, you know, and um, giving was a healing process for me. So, you know, I went to Japan, mm -hmm. you know, um, so after five years, uh, we filmed for the History Channel. It's right before I, uh, I got asked to go into Infinity Ward, Call of Duty. Uh, I was at a moment of, um, I wouldn't say I was totally at peace, but I was controlling my emotions better, right? And uh, I, I told my wife that I wanted to go to Japan. And um, I wanted to walk the path of Bushido of a ronin and she goes what's that mean i'm going to go visit the 47 ronins and i'm going to pay homage to them and i'm going to go to kumoto uh japan and visit masashi's cave 
and I want to have a talk with Masashi. And she was like, what? What's that mean, right? So we, uh, we linked it with our Japanese friends. One's a journalist, and he wanted to do a story of a modern-day Ronin, you know? So when I went to Japan, they gave us the red carpet treatment, man. They really took care of us, you know? Um, to be a foreigner, as in not Japanese, for them to treat me the way they did was a huge honor. When I say that is... They took me to Osumo Town, where sumo wrestling was developed. You know, sumo wrestlers uh, were wrestlers back in, because there there were a farming uh, society in Japan, right? So the sumo wrestlers will fight, and then they'll uh, it, it basically kicks off the harvest seasons for them. So it's tied into that culture of farming and stuff like that. So I went to old farming town in. In Japan, where sumo wrestling was started, the birth. And they took me to this old uh, dojo where they closed down the dojo. And they had this, uh, they had this dirt floor and they had this bam, uh, they had this huge log that was embedded into the ground where the sumos were slapped, you know. And they literally, they put me in the center of the stage and they performed like they were practicing back in the 8th century. And they uh, they bowed and they paid their respects to Ronin. And then um, we went to a four. So they shut down this four floors of, uh, there was this sword collector, an armor collector. And he had swords dating back 800 years. In there. Wow. You know, and I, what I want to do is I want to put this history onto you. You know, the swords and the armor. After World War II, General MacArthur demanded, off a, a peace treaty, he demanded that the Japanese, on or their surrender treaty, that they would turn in all their swords because he was eliminating the Bushido Code from the Japanese, right? So the Japanese were turning in their swords, okay? And then um, the Americans, uh, they, they banded swords. They destroy majority of the swords, these are war-stating periods, Japan swords that fought in histories that were handed down by generations. So when I sat there, these swords that were around me survived the war, the bombings, right? Yeah. The war-stating periods, you know what I mean? This should have not been in existence. This all went underground, all this art. The art of Budo had to go underground after um, World War II because they couldn't even practice the art of combat anymore. So all of that was underground. So here I am, I'm sitting, I'm seeing all this armor, the swords and everything. And the uh, sword collector had this book and he would talk about the history of this clan. It was really cool what they did. And uh, eventually we we came out to um, my bladesmith who is, uh, he lives in the town where, uh, uh, Oda Nabagata was uh, a daimyo. So Oda Nabagata, if you look at my weapon uh, on my M4, is the Sakura symbol, the clan symbol. Mm -hmm. Well, that was his clan symbol. Oda rose up to be one of the most powerful daimyos in all of Japan. He almost united all of Japan during war-staying periods. And here I am in his hometown. And that's where I received my, my swords, heaven and earth. Wow. Right, so it was a huge ceremony. Um, 
they presented to me traditionally how they would, you know, the two swords. And, and what's really cool about these swords is they were scanned into the video game, Call of Duty, Heaven and Earth. So those are the swords that I slice up my, my guys with on Call of Duty, but that's where I received it. That's uh, amazing. And then the final culmination was uh, I, we flew out to Kiyomoto, Japan. And uh, you, you, I had a, a driver meet us at the airport, and Ruthie and I, and we had uh, our friends, which was, um, they live in California, but they were there. And we drove about an hour and a half from the airport up in the mountains to where Masashi Miyamoto found his piece, that number that, the Buddhist grounds, yeah. the sacred grounds. So we drove into the sacred grounds, and there was a huge statue of Masashi meditating. And there was this uh, bell, and then basically you got this line that comes down, this rope, and you pray, and then um, you supposedly what you do is you pray, you ring the bell, and that sends it to the Buddhas, right? The God, their God. So um, they had a lot of warrior, like Bushido stuff. I was like digging this this uh, monk grounds, right? Because it's very warrior base. So then you walk uh, from the parking lot to the entrance of the temples. Remember, this is sacred grounds, mm -hmm. right? So there was a monk out in the uh, in the temples, and you had to walk through the uh, the monk temples. And when you walk through the monk temples, they had Masashi stuff laying in an exhibit. His swords, his pen, where he wrote the Book of Fire Rings, his scrolls. I mean, it was really cool. This was his original stuff. And then you uh, you walk through um, basically this coral reef area and this trail, and it leads you to the cave, right, where he wrote the Book of Fire Rings. So we, we went to the cave, and, um, you know, it was really weird that morning because, you know, it's an open ground. Like, that's a tourist area. It's a highly popular area for tourists to come. That morning, it was only us. Nobody else was on that sacred ground. The driver even said, I never seen it this empty, you know? Yeah. Basically, you know, and he... um so he stopped at the entrance of the cave and Ruthie asked me, you know, this is your moment. So I climbed up the, uh, the coral reefs to the entry of the cave and that's where I saw the rock where Miyamoto wrote the Book of Five Rings. I don't know, man, it was, um, it was so surreal, you know, that, that emotion. I can't, I can't describe it, you know? So when I entered that cave, you know, um, I bowed to Miyamoto, I bowed to Masashi. And I took off my boots and I climbed up in that rock and I sat there. The rock where he wrote the Book of Five Rings, I sat there and I overlooked, you know, the, um, the sacred grounds, the Buddha sacred grounds. And I meditated. And uh, I said my piece, you know, that closed off the chapter of the war for me. You know, and then, um, and I thank Masashi for his words. And then I climbed back down the cave and uh, then Ruthie went up there and, you know, they, they did their thing. But um, it was really spiritual for me, you know. And I would say that it was so surreal because, you know, in, the, in my darkest moments, when I was wrapped in that blanket, walking around the house defeated, it was Masashi's words from the Book of Five Rings written in 1645. 
And here I am in this cave, sitting at the very spot that he wrote that book of five rings. And that's where I closed the book on war. Wow. And when I came out of the cave, I don't know, I just felt at peace. Focused. Did you feel a sense of relief? I felt hungry, as in hunger for life. And I knew my path now as a Ronin was, you need to come back and you need to influence as much people as you can. You need to utilize any platform to try to better this world. You need to walk the path of Bushido and you're in the dull phase of your life, which is to give back. And it resonated with me, I'm in dull and this is it. So you need to live it, live it up. So after I came out, I felt, you know, this, this urge of purpose again. And then um, we drove about 45 minutes to Masashi's final resting place where he was buried. Masashi, in his final moments, um, felt death setting in, in that cave. You know, he felt death setting in. So at that point, he was this master swordsman that, you know, he was well-respected as a warrior. And uh, he asked his closest retainers to help him onto his knees. Now, death is setting in, mm -hmm. right? It's final moments of his life. And they got him to his knees, and he held his sword in a kneeling position, the warrior position, and that's how he died. Because the path of Bushido is to not fear death, is to embrace death. So what Masashi did was death was setting in, and he was going to walk into the afterlife as a warrior with his sword in hand. So... After he died, he asked um, to be buried, right? He wanted to be buried at this burial ground. It was a sacred burial ground. That's where I was going to. And it was an entry to the uh, a temple, right? And what Masashi wanted was his spirits, his spirit to wave at the future samurais, you know, as they walk past that road, you know, where his burial grounds are at. His spirit wanted to remain there so he could see the warriors of the samurais, you know? So we drove there and um, I went to Misashi's burial ground and, and it was really cool, man. It was, it was very surreal. It was in a Zen garden. Misashi's um, statue was there, you know? Um, I paid homage to that Ronin. I thanked him and um, I closed off my chapter on war, you know? So by the time I uh, came back to America, I was Ronin, I was ready. You know, when I say I was Ronin is, I had the courage, the purpose, and the energy now and the spirit to walk this path. And I've been walking ever since, you know? So that was, the story of how I, I closed that chapter in the war, you know, but Ronin tactics um, were just blessed, man. You know, my wife, she has a uh, master's degree, a business degree, so she spearheads the, uh, the business side of the growth of Ronin, and I'm the face, and I communicate with, you know, the people that are hurting in this world, and I try to heal them through my words, through my practice. I try to set the example on social media because you think about this, Sean, social media, man, it can be such a powerful tool, right? 
Yeah. Like, think about when we were growing up, man, right? If you and I, if there was no social media, you and I would never met. Mm-mm. Right? You these these fans and followers, they would never be able to access you or talk to you. But now the, the so basically I'm saying the world is a smaller place. Yes, it is. Right. The world is a smaller place. They what we do as a society is we take something that's so good that can help so many people. And the people that can't control their emotions, they use that platform to put down other people, to ridicule them, to make fun of them, to create hate sites, to make fun of other people. Right? Yeah. So I never wanted that. And I wanted to use my presence, my fame, my exposure to better this world. Because why not? I have the platform now. Yeah. You know, um, if I'm a Call of Duty character, I, I realize that... You know, the next generation, the younger generations are playing my character. Why not give them a word to better themselves? Why not show them the path? You know, and if they want to live a full life, then they'll walk that path. It's up to them. But I will never ridicule somebody. Man, words can help so many people. Well, you're doing a hell of a job, man. Thank you. Yeah, you really are. And that's uh, that's an amazing journey, you know, that you just brought us through and you know i mean yeah i'm i'm pretty speechless that's amazing and uh and you did it yourself you know so you know people don't get it's like you know when i said i study how the mind works i actually did yeah you know i mean it's like you said last night you taught yourself this yeah i i realized that i had an issue and it was a wound that I can't see. If if you were to shoot me in the arm right now, I got shot in the arm, I see that wound, I could put a tourniquet on and stop that bleeding. But if I can't see the wound, where do I start? Right. So the five years of reflecting was I was healing my wounds since childhood. Yeah. You know, because... You know, like I told you, you know, when I was going through it and I was free and oppressed and doing all that, I didn't really think about it. I didn't tie in like I was a refugee, now I'm giving back. Never. Now, I knew that as a child. I knew that was a path. But when I was doing it, I wasn't thinking about that. It wasn't until, like, when I shut off the world and I reflected back on my life, it was like, you did do that. You're a lot more, you know, in the moment than probably just about anybody I know. And um, do you pick up on a lot of details in life, coincidences, and and uh, is your faith in a higher power stronger now that you're more in the moment because maybe you've seen, you know, you were able to connect some dots or certain things have happened that maybe you wouldn't have noticed if you weren't in the moment. You know, I wasn't raised about religion. You know, my mother's Buddhist and she's a great person, Mm -hmm. great human being. That was the religion she was raised on. And I don't judge anybody on their religion. If you're a good human being, you're a good human being. You know, I know if you respect a higher power, I got that. It doesn't matter what God, as long as you're not extremists or hurting other people off of religion. 
But I never had religion shown. You know, I didn't I didn't go to church when I was a child. My my stepfather, he 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 wasn't a very religious. He's a great man, beautiful guy, but I wasn't taught that. And you know, when I was going through uh growing up and uh as a young soldier in the military, you know, they have chapels and all that. And I'm sorry to say this, but uh, I have to tell you, you know, I was going to ranger training and uh, I would go to church so I can just eat the bread because I was so fucking hungry. I was so hungry in that course. And yeah. I knew like that would break me away. And so it was all for the wrong reasons, you know? Well, I didn't necessarily mean uh, religion. Yeah. I just meant something greater than, you know. Than so it yourself. wasn't into when I faced depression was when I had to reflect on a higher power. You know, I mean, the universe, man, so big. Yeah. Right, so big. We're we're but a grain of sand in this world. We're nothing. Yeah. Our problems, our issues is nothing. But that higher power, man, that created all this beauty. If you don't if you don't believe in that, like I said, you're going to live for who you think you are. Yeah. Right. So when I believed in a higher power, when I accepted that, you know, when I, when I truly accepted it and I surrendered myself to the higher power, then that allowed me to have the energy to wake up in the morning and to live up to the expectation of the higher power. Because when I, when I want to lay in bed and I don't want to do anything, I say, no, I have to get up because I believe in this power. Yeah. And that drives me every single day. And when somebody's mean to me or they're they're cruel and their words whatever because I believe in a higher power, I look at them with more compassion. Because you know what, man? If a veteran talks bad about me, you know why I say to them? And I used to go, "Oh, well, whatever," you know? But now I go, "He's going through it." Yeah. And I forgive him. I believe in a man, you know. I, I do. And I think, you know, I wouldn't say I was in doubt, but the final, I've seen a lot of little signs or, you know, whatever kind of stuff that you tell somebody and they think you're full of shit. But the last one was uh, that flag behind you right there is all I have to remember my best friend by, uh, you know, who's, who's dead now. And he died on September 4th. And uh, and uh, I you know, I come up here and talk to him, you know, every once in a while, and and uh, and my wife does too. She got close with him uh, towards the end of his days, and you know nobody really knows this, but um, you know we've been trying to have a baby, and and uh, and she's pregnant now. Congratulations. Thank you. And my son is going to be born on September fourth. The day my best friend died. That's powerful. And, uh, powerful. you know, or at least that's the due date. But <clears throat> that's not a coincidence. No. So no. I'm all in. You know, I believe in it too, man. But, but um, you know, I kind of want to wrap this thing up too. And uh, I just want to tell you, I mean, I really mean that. That the journey that you've been on is amazing you know from birth all the way until now and uh 
and uh, you are, you know, helping a ton of people and you are so full of wisdom, you know, that anybody that's willing to listen, um, they have a lot to benefit from, you know, from listening to you. And uh, so thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And like I say, you know, the power of the universe is what brought us together and with your platform, you're doing some great things, man. And I, and I really wanted to to utilize this platform to, to send a message out, you know, to so many people that are in pain, so many people that's lost in this world, you know, don't give into the hate. Yeah. Right. Give into the, the powers that are going to bring you to the higher level, right? Don't give into the hate. It's so easy to, you know, in today's world, it seems like that's becoming a norm. And that's why you don't see me really talking too much about the Asian hate thing. Yeah. Because you know what, man, I faced with racism my whole life, my whole life. But that don't ever, that would never decide the way I'm going to live. And that's not the energy that I will ever project to others. Yeah. You know? So it's through that pain you find a higher purpose. So when people ask me, you know, what was a Ronin? Like, what's that mean? It's to be able to submerge yourself in pain and suffering, right? Because you understand by going through pain and suffering in life that that will allow you to grow as a human being. The discomfort is through the growth, right? When we're discomfort, when we're uncomfortable about things, we change. If I take a lighter and I put it underneath your hand, right? And the light is not on and I just put it there. You're not going to move. It's no pain. But if I light that thing and it burns your hand, you're going to move it. So you have to go where that pain is at. You have to go where the struggle is at because that's where the growth is at. That's the only way that you will have enough energy to change as a human being. And, you know, I think back to my path as a Ronin and where I am today. It was because I was eight years old and I was crying in my bedroom because I was tired of being weak and defeated and ridiculed, spit on. I wanted to be a stronger human being. And I knew that I needed to go through the struggles and losses in order for me to arrive at being this person that I wish to be in life. You know, along with that comes a lot of pain, you know, but pain is needed. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you for coming on. I really, really appreciate your time. And, and uh, I cannot wait to get this out. So, absolutely, brother. Well, I appreciate you and thank you for everything you do. You're welcome. Right. And uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. Celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort. Delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. 
Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at WoodhouseChryslerJeepDodge.com. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.